This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Morris speaking here. Hope you're all doing well. Now, if you'd listened to a recent announcement that I placed on the See Here feed, you would have heard that the podcast is sort of officially in hiatus until April of 2020 while we catch up with a few other things. But we know how much you love listening to us fellows rabbit on and on and on about music-related films, or at least I have that wishful thinking anyway. So what we're doing here for episode 71 of See Here is something that's very old, and yet if you've not listened to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, will be very new. And why haven't you been listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema? You know, they've been bringing class to the trash since 1977. So one thing that The Gentleman's Guide used to do a lot was they'd encourage their listeners and friends to record episodes of the show for themselves, and they would put it up on the GGTMC feed. So there might be a film that someone in their listenership really, really loved that Will and Sammy and now Todd had not gotten around to. So they were really very, very generous of spirit to allow the whole Gentleman's Guide ethos to be a real community. And I went and brought my idea to Will at the time. So this is before See Here started, as I said that I'd like to record a show to talk about a couple of fine jazz-related films. The first is Round Midnight from director Bertrand Tavernier, uh, made in 1986. And the second one was Bird, about Charlie Parker, directed by Clint Eastwood, came out in 1988. And Love That Album didn't really seem to me to be the sort of forum to put those film-related discussions out. So The Gentleman's Guide were really, really lovely in allowing us to put this episode on their feed. So I went back to Will in the last few hours and I've said to him, look, we put this episode out on your feed several years ago and we've got a few months where we're not doing anything in See Here Land. Do you mind if... I go and put that episode that we recorded for the GGTMC out on the See Here feed and will very, very generously say, please go ahead, we'd love you to. So the podcast you're about to hear is an episode recorded in 2013, in June, I think, of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, a bonus episode recorded between myself, 
Tim Merrill and a, a fellow who was quite active in the gents community at the time called Rodrigo Obon. He's out of Sweden. Lovely, lovely fellow who doesn't seem to be so active in the uh, Facebook community anymore. It's a shame. Would love to hear from him. Really, really lovely guy and a huge jazz nut. So I thought it'd be great to get his perspective and Tim's perspective as well on these two films. So hopefully that will keep you going until we're back in April. Maybe I'll be able to dig something else up that we recorded for some other podcast. I don't know. But in the meantime, here are a couple of films that really should have been covered as part of the See Here ethos anyway. But we'd already done them. So just bear in mind, though, that in 2013, my editing wasn't so great. And there's a lot of ums and a lot of ahs coming out of me. But I hope that the conversation that we had will be of interest to you about these two fine films. And I recall that we also spent a fair bit of time at the start of the show just talking about our earliest recollections of listening to jazz music in the first place. So hopefully you'll find something that you'll enjoy out of all of this. And we'll see you for episode 72 in April. All the best. Speak to you soon and enjoy this episode, this special episode of See Here a.k.a. The Gentleman's Guide to Round Midnight Cinema. to a very special bonus episode of the GGTMC. Tim, Rodrigo and Morris present Gentleman's Guide to Round Midnight Cinema, bringing jazz to the trash since 2013. listening to this podcast, uh, you're listening not to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, but what we've dubbed The Gentleman's Guide to Round Midnight Cinema, and the reason for that will be explained very, very shortly. This is a bonus episode of the GGTMC. Uh, you 
didn't hear the ecstasy of gold you've heard the uh, the great felonious monk tune round midnight and my name is morris i'm here to discuss a, a couple of great jazz films with my good friends rodrigo obon over hello in sweden hello hello rodrigo and hello, hello. and my good friend tim merrill over in uh, korea good evening tim yeah good evening cats and kittens how you doing oh yeah i'm, fe- I'm feeling jazz it's, uh, we've been looking forward to doing this for, uh, for quite a while. Many thanks to uh, Will and Sammy for uh, allowing us this privilege to use the GGTMC name to uh, talk about uh, a couple of really great jazz films. There aren't really, I guess, that many films devoted to, um, uh, to jazz music or, or jazz musicianship uh, that aren't, I guess, maybe documentaries. But um, well, I mean, if you think well, about Lady C- the blues. Uh, there's been a and couple the Paul Newman ones. What, right. what was that? John Cassavetes one? Which one? There's a John Cassavetes one, I think. Right, yes. right, right. Yeah, there's yeah, yes, yes, then... a, a really early Cassavetes. I can't remember the name. I think yes. yeah, Terry Frost was mentioning it to me. Uh, I think just the other day. Um, you got um, Paris, Paris Woody Blues Al- as well. Uh, Paris Blues. Yeah, I watched that recently uh, as part of my yeah. research for this as well. So. <laughs> I was going to say, Woody Allen's done um, some stuff with jazz, too, in terms of cinema, I think. Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, the, the, the documentary about him, Wild Man Blues, and, of course, I, I guess if you want to get technical about it, what was the um, the one about the character who was uh, 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 the, the, the jazz guitar player? Um, yeah, oh. he's in the shadow. Yeah, the the, the champagne one I'm t- so in it, Paris. No, 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 right, right, right. I know the, uh, the, the the one that had, sh- yeah, yeah, sorry, yes, yes, Sean Penn, excuse me, yeah. Yeah, he's a guitarist. Sorry, I thought, I thought he said champagne. He's... <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, the sh- yeah. Yeah, he's please plays a jazz guitarist in Paris. He's in the, sort of in the shadow of Django Reinhardt. Right, time. right, that's, that's yeah, 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 yeah uh, absolutely. And uh, I can't remember, who's the name of the actress? Who, uh, she's a mute um, in the film. She was in Breaking the Waves. Um, yeah. Oh, well, anyway. Yeah. I was thinking... <laughs> I was thinking of Zelig because the, the Woody Allen film. I think he plays the clarinet yeah. in that, right? Where he, he he's the chameleon, and he suddenly joins the Dixieland jazz band, and he's and he's just out of the blue starts playing <laughs> the clarinet. You know, <laughs> and I guess if if you want to, I mean, not that it's really a dedicated jazz film per se, but Manhattan, you know, with so much great Gershwin music, or you know, when you think yeah, about it, any Woody Allen film, you know, he's been a, a real. Um, a real advocate for using so much great jazz music, and I've I've heard a lot of wonderful tunes and been turned on to a lot of wonderful tunes through um, throughout uh, films like you know like Manhattan uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery. There's a great song at the beginning of it called um, I Happen to Like New York. I don't know who sang it, but yeah. it's never left my head. To, you know, and, and there's some couple of uh, good anthologies out there of uh, music that appeared in uh, Woody Allen films. So um, yeah, he's certainly a, a big proponent for that. And I was going to say, also, in terms of uh, jazz films, one that you, uh, it's kind of hard to come by now, but it's kind of a little cult classic, is uh, Sun Ra did a uh, quasi-documentary called Space is the Place. If you ever get a chance, you should check that out. It's pretty amazing. Mm, I've never seen it. that. I always want to see it. Is it on YouTube or something? Okay. Where can you find it? I think, I think it is on YouTube now, but it's been out of print for years and years and years. I, I had a, an old third-rate uh, VHS. HS copy of it, like a bootleg, years ago. That's how I saw I it. And they 
They yeah. used to show it on Canadian television late night on the weekends once in a while mm-hmm. if you were lucky not to catch it. But I think it's on YouTube. Mm. I might actually have a, like a BBC4 documentary about uh, Sun Ra. For, for a while there, you know, BBC4 were putting out some absolutely amazing documentaries about musicians and uh, different music styles in general. And, and um, I think, you know, for a few years there while I was sort of doing the trading rounds, uh, bootleg trading rounds, and someone sent me a copy of uh, the Sun Ra documentary. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that to this day I still haven't watched it, but um, that's just, you know, another thing for when I retire. I guess. Um, anyway, so um, I should say from the outset, if you uh, actually haven't sort of like gone and looked at your iPod to see what it is that we're talking about, but uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, film Round Midnight from 1986, directed by Bertrand Tavonier, and from 1987, Clint Eastwood's Bird. Uh, and Round Midnight, I guess, you know, it's been often said it's a fictitious uh, account. It, I mean, they... they you know, say like uh, Bud Powell and Lester Young, but you're sort of reading up on uh, Dexter's life. It could equally be uh, a take on or a fictitious account on his life in Europe exactly. or, or any of the jazz musicians who left America to uh, uh, to go to Europe. And um, uh, then Bird uh, by Clint Eastwood talking about uh, the great Charlie Parker. So um, it'll be right. interesting. I'm looking really forward to hearing what uh, you guys have to say about these two films. But, um, Rodrigo, you came up with the idea that before we started talking about the films uh, specifically, we should just have a bit of a you know, quick roundtable chat as to uh, where our uh, love and passion for jazz music actually started. Yes. Uh, I discovered jazz when I, was about, when I was about 17, 18 or something. Mm-hmm. At that time, I was having to... The Smiths. I was a big Smiths fan, mm. and I love electronic music, aggressive electronic music. I love Skinny Puppy, and I love Nitzareb, and I love Frontline Assembly, and that sort of stuff. But on the side, I started listening to Sinatra, but I didn't tell anybody this because the music was corny in, <laughs> in the, uh, with the, the people I hang around with. So I, 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 a bit of a bit ashamed of it, and I started to listen to uh, some Sinatra records. And I got obsessed with witchcraft, the song witchcraft. Mm. And I started playing it over and over and over again, again, without telling anybody. And so I started buying records. And uh, some of the first records I bought were the Sinatra records yes. with uh, Basie. Oh, okay. He, he made two records with Basie uh, yep. on the reprise level, uh, label. And, uh, and I started to listen to Basie and I started to listen to the, the soloist in the bands and I started to listen to... Duke Ellington and uh, Lester Young and all the players in the, in the nice. bands. And one of the first artists that I got hooked on was Dexter Gordon. And the first Dexter Gordon album I bought was Armand in Paris, actually, oh, which is still one of my favorite, favorite albums. Uh, Stairway to the Stars, one of my favorite tunes ever in that record. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, the rest is history. I've been hooked on jazz since then. It's, it's funny you mentioned Sinatra. I mean, I'd never count myself as a Sinatra fan, but we were talking about Woody Allen before, and one of my favorite of his films is the one that sort of came right smack bang in between his zany comedies and yeah. between his so-called Ingmar Bergman period, and it was the one that I think was written by Martin Ritt, who might have actually directed Paris Blues that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. It was a film called The Front, and at the very end yeah, of exactly. the... Or actually, the start and at the end of The Front, you hear Sinatra singing the song Young at Heart. 
And to yes. that point, I never cared for Sinatra. I like your thought, corny. And to be absolutely honest <laughs> with you, I'm still not a big fan, but that song has always spoken to me and it worked so well in the context of that film. Yeah, I agree. And I'm a huge Sinatra fan, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm mostly the capital years. His work right. with Nelson Riddle, the orchestrations during those years are just amazing. And I, I'm a big Sinatra fan, I gotta say. No. And I'm not ashamed of it anymore. Good. You stand out loud and proud. You put, yeah. you put something on, uh, on your Facebook page. <laughs> exactly. Tim, you, so, were you ever a Sinatra fan, Tim? Um, you know, Sinatra, I, I had, uh, seen Sinatra first. I'd seen him before I'd actually heard him in, uh, Kubrick's, uh, The Killing. Okay. When he was the, when he was the gangster. I think it was The Killing. Was he yeah. in The Killing? He wasn't in The Killing, was he? No, he wasn't in The Killing, no. No, what but, am I thinking of? The film that he was a gangster in. You're thinking about Suddenly. He, yeah. He started a movie called Suddenly with Sterling Hayden. That was the one. That was the one when he was the gangster yeah. in the house. They were stuck in the house. Exactly. But Ster- sort of, Sterling sort Hayden of a, was also in The Killing, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what I'm confused about. I'm sorry. But anyway, no, I... Uh, I remember, you know, seeing Sinatra with my grandparents and watching him on television and then, you know, saying, who is this guy? Oh, that's Frank Sinatra, right? And then hearing the rat, you know, the rat pack, you know, and then getting into, uh, the classic, uh, blue eyes, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. for me, jazz, jazz, I can't talk about jazz in a couple of weird ways, you know, like, for example, when I was a kid, you know, they used to, I used to love horror and I still love horror movies, you know, anything horror related. And I remember, you know, my dad having this album by this guy called Boots Randolph and he was a sax player and he used to play this real low key kind of like almost, I, I thought it was kind of spooky at the time. And he played on that where it was almost like, like they were playing this kind of almost like something that would be like uh Boris Karloff kind of horror music with a saxophone, you know? Right. And then um, a little a little while later, there was a guy who who just recently passed away from Toronto. His name is Peter Appleyard, and he's a really famous, uh, amazing Canadian. Uh, he was a xylophonist, and I remember seeing him on television when I was a kid and just being mesmerized by watching this guy go to town on a xylophone like it was like nobody's business. You know, it was just unbelievable. Just I was just absolutely hypnotized. It's, it's a beautiful then, instrument to watch being played. Oh, absolutely. And then later on, when I was in uh, high school, my first year of high school, um, you know, I started getting to meet people that were older than I was, and they were into the punk rock scene. And and it's funny because there's a lot of people that got into punk rock purely for the music, but then there was others that were more into the ephemera. Like there were more, the people that I got to know were people that were into like, you know, William Burroughs, the beats, they were into anything that was counterculture, you know, and it wasn't, and, and they thought it was all punk rock, mm. you know, punk rock wasn't just the pistols, you know, like I had friends of mine that said, you know, you got to listen to this guy, Jocko Pistorius, you know, like that guy is punk rock. Right. And I was like, and then I listened to it going, this is punk rock. And when you realize how many people he pissed off in the jazz community by doing his own thing, just, you know, cutting his own path, just like Bird did. Yep. Uh, I mean, that was punk rock. You know, punk rock is p- pissing, pissing in the face of the norm, you know, pissing, <laughs> pissing, yeah. you know, pissing against the wind, you know, that, that is punk rock, you know. And yeah. I mean, and here's one of the kings of punk rock is when I was in grade nine, 
I had an art teacher that took us on a field trip to the Art Gallery of Ontario. We went and looked at sculptures in the afternoon. And later on that night at uh, 7 o'clock, we went and saw Miles Davis. Oh, what? Oh, whoa. So oh, great oh. When I was in- oh, Yeah. And that was like, I think, 80, 82, 82 or 83, oh, like nice. around there. And, uh, and he played in Toronto at the, uh, the Mo- not the Molson Center. I forget the old, the old place now. I'd have to, I'd have to think, I forget now, but at the time, I didn't think too much of it. Like, we, we were just sitting there going, why the hell did our teacher take us to go see some black dude blow a horn? You know, like, it just, it just didn't mean, it just didn't mean anything to me at that time. You know, and, and everyone, and it just blew, it just blew our minds how, you know, we were kids and usually going to a concert meant, you know, cheering for whoever was playing and clapping politely and that kind of thing. But when Miles came out, man, you know, it, you know, you you couldn't hear a, a mouse fart, like <laughs> you couldn't hear a thing. He just yeah. played, and the whole place just stood still. Mm. He had that awesome. charisma. It, it was just well, it was it wasn't even so much as the charisma as it's just like you know, uh, he he he. It was like you know, sitting before the gods, you know, they just you know really having it on. With the gods, man, and you know, and at the time we're dumb, we're dumbass kids, and just we're just kind of like, yeah, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> but now I think back and look on it, and I'm going, holy shit, you know, like I was I was lucky, you know. Yeah. But as uh, as it went on, I I got into guys like uh, Albert Eiler, you know, and uh, I got into some of the noisier, the freakier stuff, you know, and I mean, um, and John Zorn, as uh, Morris and I have talked about in the past, you know, right? Zorn was was another guy who was punk rock who he could play klezmer jazz one minute and then go into this total like you know almost like napalm death free form you know screeching you know so you know sounds like a like a baboon being raped with a saxophone you know oh my god he, <laughs> it's he, just, he sent me you know he sent me a couple of links and i mean I, I, to be honest i'd heard some of that sort of stuff before because he wrote the music for um uh, michael haneke's film funny games and I always found that music disturbing and, and just thought, oh, I, I'm too scared to follow this guy through. But then you pointed me towards um, uh, that, Spillane. That, Spillane, and what a yeah. fucking terrific album that is. That's an amazing record, yeah. Yeah. Well, you see, that's the thing, and I, and I think that a lot of people overlook about jazz is that, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, any other genre is inadequate. But with a lot of jazz musicians, there's a level of versatility, you know, between artists and jazz that you don't really reach in other forms of music. I mean, you get guys that can play with quartets, you can get guys that can play solos, you can get guys that can play duos like Bird and uh, Dizzy Gillespie, you know. You get guys that can play this form, that form, and, you know, like... And Zorn is such a chameleon like that. I mean, this guy can play practically fucking anything, man. You know, just say, here, you know, like, you know, you know, do a video game soundtrack. Okay, you know, here, do I'm like, uh, play, play this Jewish Cosmer from the uh, 16th century. Oh, sure. Uh, play this chamber music. Yeah, no problem. You know, like, he can do it. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, with, with jazz, jazz lends to that. And, and I think that jazz is so... Uh, a lot of people think that jazz is so angular, you know, or it's so cut and dried for, for a lot of listeners, you know. Uh, 
but it's not. It's it's so organic and it's and it's it's a living thing. And I mean, it blends, you know, and and, and it's like food. It, it it just blends with whatever it's with, you know. Yep, yep, Whoever's yep. playing together, you you can get the taste of of each person, you know, and and they just create a gumbo. And not to get into the films, already, but that's the thing I loved about Round Midnight too, and uh, Lady Eight, I think his name was Lady Ace, which was uh, yes. Bobby, yeah, Bobby, Bobby Hutchinson. Yeah, when he was cooking, and he's always cooking, you know, like, you want some beans and rice? It's just like that kind of. That's what jazz is. Yeah. Jazz is you. You bring the pepper, I'll bring the spice. You know, you bring the lemon, I'll bring the lime. He brings the tequila. And we're gonna put it together and have a hell of a time, man. Like that's that's what jazz is. And I guess that's. Um, uh, I guess, you know, for maybe people with, without wanting to sort of, you know, judge too much, but I think maybe what scares a lot of people off is they can't sort of absorb that whole notion of just sitting around and cooking something together. They, you know, they like something that's a lot more structured. And, um, you know, I, I can fully understand that too, but um, I've often found myself sort of, you know, getting lost in, in uh, you know, maybe listening to a great Mingus album or, or, or um, so, I mean, look, I, I, even I have my limits. So, you know, the whole freeform jazz thing that um, Ornette Coleman did, you know, real, that still scares me off. I'm not quite prepared to, <laughs> to eat that gumbo, but, but um, sure. yeah, but cer- certainly, um, yeah, look, the whole, the whole thing about let's take, let's see where this is going to take us. Let's see where we're going to go. Um, exactly. It's something I find it, very exciting. And that analogy about was... cooking. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, go ahead. No, no. I was going to say that, you know, the one thing that I find interesting, too, that um, as much as a lot of people are, are vehemently anti-Grateful Dead, I found that it's kind of interesting that a lot of people I know that are friends of mine that are huge deadheads are also big jazz fanatics. Right. Because the dead, you know, the, right. the new terrorists for their long ended you know jam sessions you know and their 15 minute versions of this and their 25 minute versions of that and everybody's following along with them right to the end as they're noodling and you know and they're getting all self-indulgent and you know disappearing down the rabbit hole well a lot of jets you know that's what it's about man is that you know if you're really into the players and you know you know where you know you just let them you know it's just like excuse me while i crawl into my ass for a minute oh no crawl away man like <laughs> I'll just sit here and let you do what you're going to do. You know, like, let me get self-indulgent here for a minute. No, you go right ahead. I'm going to sit back and enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Our, yeah, uh, seven Dungeons is the, is the most common criticism of jazz. People say that it's like hearing people having fun without without an audience. You know? <laughs> do, do, have you, um, are you familiar with um, – I'm not sure if he's American or Canadian. Uh, but I, th- I think he's American. A uh, comedian called Rich Little. He has a, a character called yes. o- Otis Lee. Sure. Yeah. And, and he, um, Otis Lee Crenshaw, I think he, uh, he, he has this line in his routine or one of his routines where he says, you know what a jazz band is? It's a blues band that someone's pushed down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, look, I, I'll just very quickly before we get into the movies, I'll sort of go back my epiphany as it were up until I think I was maybe, um, after I left school and I started going to, started going to uni and, I met this guy and I was always talking about, you know, this rock band that I liked or that rock band that I liked and, you know, think was really full of myself thinking, oh, yeah, you wouldn't have heard of this, you wouldn't have heard of that. And, of course, it was, you know, really nothing that much out of the way. 
but he said, listen, you know, you want to get yourself a little bit adventurous, take this record home and see if it doesn't change your life. And he handed me a copy of Friday Night in San Francisco by Al Demiola, John McLaughlin, and Paco de Lucia. And that was the record that changed my life because, (laughs) not just because how musically wonderful it was, but I, you know, kept thinking, I didn't know you could do that with a guitar. Um, Right. And absolutely amazing. And then when, um, when the trio came to Australia, uh, Al Demiola was, uh, it looked like he wasn't going to be able to make it because he'd contracted food poisoning. So they got Steve Morse as his replacement. Uh, but mm-hmm. Al Demiola got better. Uh, and so they brought Steve Morse along anyway. And Steve Morse came on as support act. And, you know, no one had heard of him here at the time. We hadn't heard the Dixie Dregs. But he came on stage and I swear he blew the three of them away. And that's, you know, <laughs> amazing, you know, just to think, cause you can't, you can't blow John McLaughlin away, but, you know, let alone those three guys. But anyway, so that, that was my first epiphany. And I think the first, you know, few years after that, like, I guess a lot of, you know, teenage, uh, young jazz fans, I was following the whole jazz fusion route. And then that led, you know, to something slightly different with, um, uh, following ECM, some of the ECM artists, uh, like, you know, right. Pat Metheny and, uh, what, some of what Keith Jarrett was doing, Jack DeJanette, John Abercrombie, uh, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> Never mind. I had to throw that in there. Kenny G. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got this picture of uh, being, you know, sitting in a sitting in a dentist chair and, you know, uh, having my teeth drilled on, um, uh, and my eyes forced open while while being made to watch Kenny G and, you know, just like in Wayne's World and trying to work out which is worse. Um, so, um, but yeah, look, so, um, but yeah, the whole, yeah, the fusion thing and then the ECM thing, and uh, I think I guess watching. Around midnight back in 1986 was, you know, my gateway to, you know, more, more trad, well, not trad, but, you know, more traditional styles away from fusion and going to the whole bebop thing. And, you know, or as you said, I think the phrase you used before was rabbit hole. So uh, it's just been a wonderful uh, journey since then. Sure. Um, I, I think that was my introduction to Dexter Gordon and, you know, I went on a big Dexter Gordon binge, uh, you know, buying all every Blue Note album I could find and uh my personal favorite uh rodrigo is um uh the album one flight up this whole 18 minute track called tanya uh just got this great riff that they sort of keep bouncing off and this is you know exactly what you're saying they're having this conversation you know they you know this basic sort of riff that they're playing and then each one of them takes a solo over it and um yeah it's just a it's a a great record yeah yeah, fantastic so well, there you go. There, those are our jazz credentials. I, I think we're—I I guess we're qualified to talk a little bit about these movies. Um, <laughs> so, what we'll do anyway uh, is um, we'll go take a bit of a break, uh, gargle some vodka or whatever it is, uh, beverage of choice, and then come back and uh, we'll go. And, I guess in chronological order, we'll talk about Round Midnight first. Um, is great. that that cool, guys? Sounds yeah. great. Excellent. All right. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to uh, Rodrigo, Tim and Morris. You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Round Midnight Cinema. We'll be back in a minute. There is a time in every life when all you can feel is the music. A time when the listener can hear what the player dreams. A time when the end 
suddenly becomes the beginning. Round Midnight. From renowned international director Bertrand Tavernier, an intimate vision of life with a special rhythm and a very personal sound. Mr. Dale Turner. A world where a man becomes a legend. You know, your music changed my life. Where a stranger becomes a savior. Because only he can keep the legend alive. Was I good? It is a story of survival in the name of passion. A story of love in the name of music. My life is music. My love is music. And it's 24 hours a day. Time begins again around midnight. Shall we dance? And we're back from break. Morris, Rodrigo and Tim here to talk a couple of great jazz films for you. Well, why are they great? Well, we'll talk about that and sort of work that out. Uh, you're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Round Midnight Cinema. Our thanks to uh, Willie and the Samurai for allowing us to uh, take over the asylum, as it were. So the first film we're going to talk about is a film from 1986, directed by Bertrand Tavonier, called Round Midnight, and starring Dexter Gordon, the great jazz sax player, who actually got nominated for an Academy Award, if I recall yeah, correctly. No. There's yep, a, for acting, yeah. It was, it was a nice little irony there, though, because the winner of... I looked this up. The winner that year was um, uh, Paul Newman for The Colour right. of Money. Money. And yeah, yeah. the irony is that, you know, however many, 25, 26 years prior, he had played in the film Paris Blues, which we mentioned earlier on, as a jazz musician who'd left America to go live in... Paris and you know just escape the the life that he didn't particularly like, along with uh, Sidney Poitier. So, uh, so there you go. I find it. I think Dexter did a better job that, than Paul Newman did. Yeah, me too. I, I find it ironic too that in the same year, Herbie Hancock won the Academy Award for the best score for Round Midnight, whereas Dexter played on that, but he didn't get the award, but Herbie did. And really, there's only, I think, uh, one or two original Herbie Hancock pieces in the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Most of it's... I um, think for, for, for what he scored it, for this, you know, for his oh, work for, on the for, score. Oh, for, for arrangement, okay. Right, right. right. Uh, so, let me pull this up on um, IMDB and see what their description is uh, in the best GGTMC uh, silver and gold fashion. Uh, let's see. In Round Midnight, real-life jazz legend Dexter Gordon brilliantly portrays the fictional tenor sax player Dale Turner, a musician slowly losing the battle with alcoholism, estranged from his family, and hanging on by a thread in the 1950s New York jazz world. Dale gets enough... Oh, no, there's too much here. Anyway, so... uh, Quick summary, uh, Dexter plays as a revered jazz musician who, as I've already gone and indicated in the IMDB plot, um, who, he, he's, uh, he's escaping from America as a lot of black musicians did, uh, to go to Europe where they could practice their art form and be treated, revered, uh, and treated as kings, uh, rather than right. uh, face the hostility that they did in uh, an, an America that was 
not only you know that uh, black musicians weren't respected, but also rock and roll was taking over too. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, he says that at the beginning. It says, "There's no cold ice in Paris." Right. Right. No co- yeah. So he he knows he, um, he's going to be. I was going to. I was going to say that there's a connection between uh, both films in, in many ways, but uh, one connection specifically is both films. They mention something called the cabaret card. Are you guys familiar with that? I've heard it. The cab. Well, the cabaret card basically was brought in around the time of Prohibition in America. And basically all musicians and entertainers had to basically get this card in order to be able to perform it. They spoke about that in Lenny, didn't they? Right. Okay. Right. What it was was it was a way for local law and uh, government officials to kind of roust up the undesirables and to kind of, uh, you know, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, corruption and racism that went on with it. Whereas, you know... In order to get your cabaret cards, you had to a police station and be photographed and fingerprinted in order to get the card. And right there is a stigma of criminality to begin with. Right. And then what happens was, you know, because they knew that a lot of the jazz musicians and a lot of uh, performers, you know, in general were hopheads or were known to dabble in, you know, certain narcotics, that the police would lean on them. And the police would lean on them for, you know, paying them so, quote-unquote, dues, you know, in, in order to not, you know, get them to have their, their cabaret card yanked. And, and you and you see this, actually, in Bird, which we'll talk about later on, but Second. Dexter men, mentions it, too, in Round Midnight. And that's why a lot of, you know, it wasn't just the, you know, the prevalent racism that went on in America at the time. It was the underlying, the subtleties, you know, that, that those that, you know, in the general public didn't know about. Like, for example, this cabaret card, this type of thing, where, where that forced a lot of African-American musicians and performers to go to Europe where the visa um, uh, stipulations were a lot more lenient. And I think that because of, you know, France in general, um, if you look at, you know, the uh, influx of immigrants into France and people from Algeria and other parts that, you know, French-speaking Algeria, like, you know, they were pretty um, accustomed to people of color in France. Yep. And they were, they were accustomed to people of, of different races and different walks of life. So I think, you know, that's what really attracted um, a lot of these African-American musicians, you know, like I said, and not to mention dealing with all the bullshit in America with the with the issues of the cabaret card. Mm, mm. And mm, I mean that was it. Dexter's life as well. I, I was having a bit of a uh, a read of a bio and uh, and it said that you know that's essentially what he did. He spent many years in France and many years in Denmark. Um, I mean that's that's he, why he was I, I, They're gone. Yeah. He was in Sweden, he was all over. I mean yeah. There was places they they played in Belgium many years. They play played in Antwerp. They played all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So, you know, I guess you know, for for, the, for those musicians who made that decision to go and tour the continent, they they would have uh, been treated, uh, you know, like well, almost like rock stars, I guess. You know, without without the screaming, they were respected for what they did, um, and exactly. they they were able probably to uh, uh, branch out and get inspired and. Uh, and probably played better than they ever could have back home. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about the um, the film. I mean, there's a bit of a background to it. 
Uh, I, look, I, I guess I read this film as essentially it's it's a love letter to jazz. I mean, the the two films are very different in tone. I mean, no one could accuse either film of being fast paced. Uh, these are <laughs> these are these are both films that really take their time to tell a to tell a story. But really, I guess maybe that's where the similarities end. Is uh, both the, the the tones are very different. Both guys. Uh, both uh, Dale Turner, the character that Dexter Gordon plays in uh, Round Midnight, and um, Charlie Parker, uh, played by Forrest Whitaker in Bird, uh, they're both falling victim to um, to drugs and alcoholism. But but we uh, we look at each character in a very different way. Clint Eastwood shows us you know, what ha- the spiraling down of Charlie Parker. And as you've said, we'll get to that very shortly. But uh, this this film, it, it's almost a by-the-by that uh, Dale has an alcohol problem, and it's only fleetingly suggested later on in the film that there was a drug issue too. But in right. in this film, it's really, I see it more as a love letter to the music of the time and right. also very much a friendship film because uh, he meets... Uh, this uh, th- this chap, uh, Francis Baller, who's uh, pro- played by uh, I- I'm not sure if I'm going to get the um, pronunciation correct. Is it uh, Francois Clusier? Is that how it's pronounced? Uh, I, I think it's so. Clusier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, Francois Clusier plays um, uh, a, a character who can't afford the um, the price of entry into uh, the gigs once um, uh, Dale you know, makes his way over to France and he's playing in uh, the Blue Note venue in Paris with, you know, this great band which you know, life or, or art imitating life or however you want it is basically members of um, uh, Herbie Hancock's original Blue Note band that Dexter would have played with years ago and members of Miles Davis's group too. Exactly. Um, you know, you know it's in the band too in the background there, John McLaughlin. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who, who yeah. play with Miles Davis? I mean, who, who else is there? Is it Wayne Shorter? Yeah. Um, yeah, Wayne Shorter. Uh, 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 Ron, Ron, Ron uh, Carter turns up both in the New York band yeah. later on in the film, yeah. as well. And later on is Freddie Hubbard, my favorite. I love Freddie Hubbard. Mm. And yeah, I was going to say Freddie. Yeah. But you know, at the beginning of the film, it, you know, with when you're talking about, you know, uh, Francois Clouzet when he's he's leaning against the window in the pouring rain. In the beginning, mm, mm. you know, that that really hit me hard because I remember being a kid when I was underage and not being able to get into clubs. And we'd, we'd hang outside and try to lean against the door with your, you know, your ear against the door to hear what was going on inside. Right. I've done that. Yep. Oh, you know, and, and so I, I could relate entirely with what he was, you know, what he was going through there. And, and you see, he's so excited to be there. This, this bit like he's sitting outside in the rain. Um, he's he's uh, like counting every measure, and he's just got this smile on his face, like a he's just got this really simple childlike excitement that he's getting there to to hear not only this great music in general, but you know, Dale Turner is his absolute hero. And, and that, yeah, that dude like comes kid. out. Try, the dude comes out and tries to bum five francs off him, and he's like, "Fuck off! You realize I'm listening here, man. You're gonna interrupt it all, like you know, piss off." <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I had any money, I'd be in the club. That's right. Something like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, uh, Rodrigo, so give us, like, your perspective, because, you know, you're being a, a European resident. I mean, just 
watching and watching them at that time. Is the jazz scene still big like they sort of painted in these films from from the period? You know, I was just in Paris actually. I came back a couple of days ago. Nice. And uh, the jazz clubs everywhere, and the jazz scene seems very much alive over there. And here as well, we had a jazz festival in Stockholm that has now closed down, sadly. So it's it's still alive somewhat, somewhat, you know, but uh, not not that much. Uh, what can I say about this movie? I love I love the first shot. It feels like one of the jazz photographs mm, standing mm. on the. It's in black and white, or faded. Yes. And uh, it, it, it's what I like this about this movie. It's not very sentimental. There is darkness and there is sadness. Better don't dabble on it. They don't spend too much time on it. They talk about it. You can see it in his eyes, in Dexter mm. Gordon's eyes, even in François Clouset's eyes. But they don't talk about it that much. Not as much as in Bird, which is a bit more painful, as you said. Yes, yes. And uh, what I like about this movie is also is that it doesn't spend much time in exposition. <laughs> uh, François Clouset is like a, he's like a kid in the club. Yes. Later you find out yes. he, he has a kid. Right. And you, the the movie doesn't tell you what it does. He descri- the movie describes it in just one one image, an image of his child and some paintings, and you get aha, he's a lone parent, and he he's a painter, he's an artist. They don't talk about it until later in the movie. Yep. Uh, I, I really, I really, really like that. Uh, and the movie's full of those little moments that you know paid off later in the movie that. Okay, subtle, subtle. There's um, there's a couple of moments there that uh, I, I sort of find yeah, they're like little in things for the jazz fans because I think probably in a way both Bird and Round Midnight are aware of who their audience is going to be. I don't think either film is trying to win over people who aren't already devoted to the music, and yet uh, I think Round Midnight does it far more successfully. That I think so. It, 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 it can, it wins you over. I mean, you, you probably are going to be a jazz fan, but I really felt you didn't have to be a jazz fan. Whereas I think Clint Eastwood, um, I, I keep preempting this, but I, I think Clint Eastwood probably presumed more knowledge on the viewers part about Charlie Parker than uh, he, he possibly should have. But, um, but neither, but neither of the, neither of the movies tried to explain the music. They don't right. try to explain the music, yeah. Which is which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just like no, I don't here think it's it a bad is, thing. Here, here it is. Here it is. Enjoy it. There, there's um, a couple of moments in Round Midnight. Uh, I think one of them is when um, Dexter Gordon first brings uh, um, Francis into the Blue Note, and also later on when they're in um, when they go over to New York, and you hear in the background you hear Watermelon Man being played it's not it's not actually one of the tunes that the band is playing it's just something that's going over uh the 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 club's speaker system or something but it's not uh, not the version that you actually you know that that herbie hancock recorded but i just thought that was a nice little touch because you know that was a tune that dexter played on in the uh, original blue note version exactly i think in this film there they use different forms of recollection and and memory because, you know, like, in, in the beginning, it starts in the hotel room where he says, is, is this the room where Herschel died? Right. 
Yeah. And then and then they go back to that later on, and then you know, and then it's so funny because Dexter's talking about you know when he went to see Herschel the last time, and it was a Friday, and then and then later on also you see uh, Francois's character where he's watching the old black and white film, the Super Eight, with his daughter. When she comes into the room and she's like, yeah, "Do you like basketball?" Mm-hmm. And she's yeah. remembering remembering the conversation she had with Dexter, right? You know. Yeah. And, and and there's these there's these different kind of uh, devices that I think that they use in the film that is really effective, you know. Like part of it, you're in it. Part of it is recollection, and part of it, you know, like again, they use the film or uh, they use the Super Eight black and white, or they use uh, fades and edits. And there's di- there's just different devices in this film that really capture the moment, you know. That's, um, that, that's such a good point. I, I mean, I think the beauty of that is. Uh, it, it's all subtle, and you're never hit over the head with it. You know, there's not, Dad. I remember the time when Dale used to ask me uh, these funny little questions, like, "Do you ask? Do you like basketball?" You just see that, and then the first time you hear her say it, you don't actually know why she's saying it, but you can sort of guess it was a question that he'd asked her. It's quiet, it's subtle, just absolutely beautiful. Done it. Not at any stage of the film do you ever feel that you're hit over the head, or you should like this, or right. you should get it. It's, exactly. it's just, it yeah. really leaves a lot to uh, to the viewer to take on for themselves. And you know, I always I saw the character Dale myself, kind of like the the mythological leprechaun, where you know. <laughs> you had to keep a hold of his coattails or he was going to disappear, you know. But if you can manage to keep a hold of him, you know, he'd give you gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he, he, certainly gives, you... he certainly gives Francis and um, uh, the, the other people who are sort of like trying to look after him uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of scares, a lot of run for their money. You turn your head and he's right. off down the pub, uh, down the road that, where they will serve him a glass of wine. Exactly, yeah. Right. And I laughed at the moment where, you know, when uh, Francis invites him over to his house for the first time, you know, for dinner, and you see him watering down the wine, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Dale says, you know, does this wine have water in it? And he says, yeah. <laughs> he starts laughing. Hang he on. says, yeah. it's, it's, it's it looks good. good. Tim, yeah, it's still Tim, good. Hang on, Tim, you got to get it. You got to get it right. Hey, Francis, <laughs> tell me, does this wine have water in it? Uh, um, yes. We. We. What did he ask, Papa? Never mind. I'll tell you later. <laughs> exactly. That was another device that I was funny, too, was his daughter kept asking, what is he saying? What is he saying? When, uh, when Francis made it, when he, he hit gold with the movie studio for his sketches, and they're sitting there eating the big giant steaks, and he says to yeah. his daughter, oh, well, do you want me to put the potato on the side or on the top? And then, uh, you know, Dale says something, and she says, what does he say? And he says, oh, he says that we treat him like a king. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was awesome. I mean, yeah, just, you know. Gorgeous but, but the movie yeah. is full of those little, those little moments that are really touching without being, as you said, hitting you over the head with it. There are no tears right. or happy music or people laughing. <laughs> ah, it's just a, a, little, a little moment. I want right. to say, go on. One of my favorite moments, actually, was the, it wasn't even with Dexter at all. But he wasn't even playing, but it was when they were having that house party. And uh, what was her name? Butter? Uh, Buttercup. Uh, Buttercup, yeah. When she's singing that song, you know, he better bring the money and put it right here, you know? <laughs> yeah. When she's singing, she's just, 
what Herbie's playing, and they're just riffing. Like, that was fantastic, you know? And Dexter's just sitting back, smiling and smiling and smiling. And you could tell that that moment wasn't staged, that they were really enjoying what was going on there. It was, it was you know, that was authentic. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's uh, another point that uh, we should make. I don't know if, um, uh, I don't think we've spoken about this yet. Uh, all the music for uh, for this film uh, was recorded live, which really, I mean, for a, a music-related film, was you know, is just about unheard of. I don't, I don't know, apart from documentaries, but I, I don't think I know of no. you know, many uh, just you know, fictitious. Um, acted out stories that have uh, a live band on set everything so like done in in overdub later on they they spent a long time i think with the uh, sound designer for the film whose name escapes me uh getting getting the acoustics for the set right because they built this whole jazz club on on a on a sound stage and uh just getting that sound right and i, I think I, I read in the liner notes i've got the vinyl here and i think in the liner notes herbie hancock uh, you know, had made mention, you know, man, this sounds better than any jazz club I ever worked in. <laughs> um, I was going to make mention, because uh, you know, we've already spoken about, you know, the, the relationship that both uh, Francis and Dale have. And, uh, I mean, Francis, because he spends so much time, you know, go, he, like before he sort of really gets his, himself into... Uh, Dale's life and he seems to spend every night going out to see uh, Dale play uh, at uh, at the Blue Note but you know you're sort of thinking what sort of a father are you you're leaving in, in your apartment you know this 10 uh, year old girl I mean it's yeah. uh, what, what sort of thing and the irony is that later on once he um, sort of discovers that uh, no one else is going to uh, help Dale you know look after himself properly um, and he, he invites him to come live with him and his daughter. He becomes very paternal. He becomes more fatherly to Dale than he ever did to Beranger, his his real daughter. I, I just sort I of like I, takes, I like these relationships. That, that sort of, uh, I like it. He takes more responsibility for his life once Dale comes into his life. He doesn't seem to be much bothered without for getting no. a job until Dale comes in. We need a bigger apartment. <laughs> that's, that's right, and he, he goes to his ex-wife for a loan, so yeah, they can, they can rent out. And, and she says, and she says to him, "Look, I'll give you the money, but you know, didn't I ever inspire you?" So, you know, I, I think by the end of the film, he's learnt something about, without giving anything away, really. It's it's not that sort of film, but he, he's learnt something about how to be more, uh, not just you know, paternal, but at least you know, being close to those around him through his um, adopted role as a, a father, if you will, to a man who was, who was older than him. Exactly. Well, you know, what's interesting, too, is there's the bit where, you know, uh, he's coming back to his apartment, and he's just hearing this cacophonous jazz blasting, and he's like, what the hell is going on? Right. And he runs in, and it's his daughter, the, the girl, and she's like, and he yeah. says, well, what is the circus is in town? And she kind of flinches like he's going to smack her, and he says, no, 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 like, and then she goes to turn it off, and he says, no, no, just sit here. We'll listen to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's almost like, you know, it's like she's trying to kind of, you know, get closer to her dad by listening to what he's listening to. I, I, th I think he, has... he realizes that. He comes over, and she's playing the music really loud. Right. And he doesn't punish her. No. He realizes no. that she's not only trying to get his attention, but trying to understand him. 
Right. He's become part of his life. He, he knows right. that, and I think he sort of feels a little bit of shame that he's ignored it to that point. Exactly. Right. Right, right, right. That, and, that's a very moment. And, and, and I, I guess that also gets uh, really driven home to him uh, later on in the film, because uh, at, at one point, uh, Dale says to Francis, uh, you know, I need to go home, uh, meaning New York. And so uh, you know, Francis is you know, still sort of like looking after him, uh, like a like a parent who's reluctant to let the child go, goes off with him to uh, yeah. New York, and discovers that Dale has a daughter all of his own, and he doesn't even know how old she is. He dedicates a tune to her. They meet at the the jazz club. And says, "This is a tune for my daughter. Is just turned 15." And she and she goes 14. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, having having said that, she shouldn't complain too much because if I had you know, someone write a tune as gorgeous as the one that, um, well, the character, but really Herbie Hancock, uh, called Chance Song, and Stevie Wonder for me, I'd be I'd be proud. You uh, know, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah Stevie, Stevie yeah. Wonder as well. You know, it's funny is that um, you know, and she says there's no words in it. And he goes, well, some songs just don't need words. You know. <laughs> I thought, I thought that was funny. It was just the way you know, and and, and I wanted I wanted to say for a minute, and this is this is just a personal you know uh, opinion, but um, as much as I love him as a director, I can't stand watching Martin Scorsese on screen. Uh, really? We're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I loved what he. It was like a less psych, slightly less psychopathic version of the character he does in Taxi Driver. I was supposed exactly. to say the same. Less, less murdery. Exactly. But that's why I. That's why I don't like him because because he's so good at playing such a a skeevy, fucking oily kind of guy. Like he he, he he's amazing like that. Uh, like so he's, you're criticizing the character, not not the, not the oh, performance. Right. No, I'm not criticizing the performance at all. I'm just criticizing him whenever he gets into that that headset and he gets on, he gets on the screen. And he's like, "Well, well, I I, I got you a jar of peanut butter and I, and I got you this and, 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 and everything's gonna be okay." Yeah, he, and you're just like, "Oh, fuck. Like, it took a mile a minute." But that's like uh, Francis gets a cold shower when he comes to New York. He gets a shot right. of New York. He gets Scorsese. Yeah. You, you yeah. can get and, more New York than that. And Dale says, yeah, and like it's so funny, even Scorsese says, oh yeah, you know, I prefer New York. It's a tougher town. They're tougher people, you know, and he's going on and on. Yeah. And then he's, oh, he's down, such a patronizing prick. Right, exactly. That's, that's why I yeah. cringe you know, whenever I see I love, him like I, that. I love and, to see when he leaves. Yeah. Sorry, on. Dale says, go ahead. SOS, you know, like. Same. 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 Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. gonna. Um, I was gonna make uh, another point because, as as melancholy as this film gets, there are a few really funny moments, and there's a bit. I'm sure that Rob Reiner has watched this film because remember, there's a bit in uh, the Blue Note in Paris where there's this guy he's having a drink, and uh, you know Dexter can't get anyone to uh, give him any alcohol, and there's this guy he's just standing up at the bar, and he. Falls flat on his back after having too much to drink, and Dexter says, "I'll have, I'll have what that guy's having." <laughs> and I was, I was trying to look up, thinking, "When was when Harry met Sally made? 1989. They stole it. They stole it." Right. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, said, they borrowed it. The in, yeah. uh, he says, "I guess I'm the only invisible Indian here, or something like that." When he's uh, he's sitting at the bar, and everybody else is getting served except him. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he calls the bar the bartender half a motherfucker. 
That's a Dexter, uh, that's a Lester Young insult, as I understand. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I used to call the MC at the Blue Note that he was a little guy, a midget, and he called him half a motherfucker. <laughs> so he calls people that a couple of times. You have a motherfucker. <laughs> That's a great insult. Uh, I'm trying to think of the character, uh, the actor's name now. Shit, the guy who was the the bartender there at the Blue Note, because he was in uh, Goodfellas. He's been in a lot of Scorsese stuff. Uh, the mustache. Oh shit! I think he was in Boogie Nights too. Oh really? Hang on. I'm, oh, hang on. I've got. I'll, I'll see if I can get this up. Keep talking, and I'll um, I'll try and get it up. Uh, He's a guy that kept. He was a guy that kept minding the bar. He kept telling uh, Dale, "No, no, 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 no. Like I'm not giving you anything. Like forget yeah, it." Right. Um. Uh. Oh. Oh. Hang on. Um. I can't. Oh. Can I identify him? Oh, nah. Nah. Can't work out who it is. Never mind. Never mind. That's no. 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 But no. Like there was so much in this though. Like there's like little little bits and pieces of this that are just so. So beautiful. I mean, like this film, like we, you know, you've really gotta hand it to Tavernier. Like, uh, like for example, the beginning at the Blue Note. There's just like like a couple who comes out in the rain, and the guy pulls his coat out and covers their heads, and they're just like walking out of the bar into the rain. You know, I just love stuff like that. Like it just, it's just so. There's so many moments in this film that could have just been snapshots, you know, that you could see in yeah. a poster or framed. Like, it was just incredible, you know. Oh, make no mistake. This film, and, and it's, it looks to me like certainly a good chunk of it, not just the, um, not just the blue note, but some of the street scenes look like they're on a, they're on a, a film set, but even yeah. uh, Paris on a film set is still painted as being far more beautiful than, uh, New York, when we see like skylines of uh, of New York, which doesn't so much look ugly, but more melancholy. And the picture that we're painted of New York, uh, drugs are never a problem for Dexter, or what should I should say, Dale in Paris. But you know, as soon as he gets into um, that that uh, hotel that he's staying in, Paris, the one where Herschel died, uh, the, the the corridors look scungy. I mean, we see the hotel where he stays in Paris, and and it's you know it's probably no better, but it never looks as depressing as the one in New York. And then we see the we see the skyline, the early morning skyline, and it just it, it comes up over um or, you know like a really bad part of town. It just yeah, Tavernier is definitely um, saying uh, I'm. Between Paris and New York, it's no secret as to which one I'm a bigger fan of and which one I'm going to paint in a, in a better light. It feels dangerous um, in New York. When he comes back to New York, it feels like he's not going to make it. Right. He shouldn't really be there. You know, it's the same old shit, as I said. Yeah, yeah. Wait, Let's talk about something. I, brief. Oh, go on. There's something I wanted to mention, um, and I, I don't know if it, it's just what I got out of it, but I could be completely wrong. But I mean, there's a there's a moment in the film when um, Dale's talking about serving in the military, and he's talking yeah. about how you know the the uh, white sergeant says makes a swipe about his wife, and Dale winds up putting a smack on him, and he winds up getting thrown in the stockade, and he's saying you know that they they basically beat his head in, right? And if and if it wasn't for a, a Jewish doctor, the Jewish doctor got him out of the army. And um, he said, you know, like, it was paradise. It was wonderful, you know. 
And then, and then he, he kind of also says, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, so the guys that created Bebop got kicked out of the army. So yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering, is it just me or, or did you guys get the kind of vibe that he picked up his his kind of narcotics addiction from from this doctor in the military? I actually I hadn't made that connection at all. Um, it mm-hmm. may, may well have been. Maybe that was what he uh, uh, alluded to. But you'd probably have to uh, sort of read the history books about that because I mean, if Dexter and all the other real musicians in the film certainly would have given them good advice to uh, to to Vernier saying, you know, this is for real. This really happened, and you can put this in the script, and you can pull that out of the yeah. script. That's another point I wanted well, to make. You know, how much how much do you think it's scripted of the dialogue of what Dexter Gordon says? Uh, look, you know, I'm, I, I, I reckon it's probably like a real script with the odd motherfucker thrown in, you know, uh, yeah. ad hoc. But, um, but uh, look, it's yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure it was actually scripted as opposed to sort of like you know saying right, oh well, we'll do this scene, and you just have to make sure that this information is conveyed because probably someone mm-hmm. like Dexter, strangely enough, uh, for being a you know a, a jazz musician who thrived on improvisation, probably I imagine would have. Not being like a professional actor would have no. uh, thrived on saying, "Right, well, you tell me what to say, motherfucker, and I'll, I'll do it." <laughs> and he probably would have worked well um, with with a script. That's just my impression. Right. Um, let's let's briefly talk because we've been talking, you know, a fair bit about the story and you know the the beauty of the look of the film. Um, we probably should be heading off to Bird fairly shortly, but just before we do that, let's just quickly talk about the music of the film because you know after all this is you know a love letter as much to jazz music and as it is to paris and as it is uh to the whole era as as well but um we've already gone and mentioned that some of the musicians were uh, guys who played in uh miles davis's band and uh, herbie hancock's uh blue note bands of of uh, the early 60s but then you know there's a couple of other a couple of other guys who uh, like uh, you know European guys, and that, that was a common thing, wasn't it? You know, for for um, uh, American jazz musos to you know, get pick up bands and or, or local musicians. Like I think we were speaking before about One Flight Up, and I think the bass player is a guy called Nils Henning Orsted Pedersen, if I remember the name correctly. Yeah. And there's, and there's a guy I here. Like a, I have a couple of his records. He's, he's great. He was only, I think, 19 when he made that record or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. What an incredible player. And, and this, He's playing in the background of some great, great records. Wow. <clears throat> so, so who else has he played for? Do you remember? Well, Without wanting to put you on the spot. No, no, don't, I'm not putting you on the spot. No, okay, move on, move on. Uh, <laughs> but there's also uh, uh, Pierre Michelot who, uh, on, on double bass, who I'm... Pretty sure, like he he would have played on uh, some of those uh, Dexter Gordon recordings in in, um, in the Blue Note days or the Prestige days. Right. Well, there was a lot of session guys in France that played right along with Dexter. I know that that there was, uh, you know, and, and that that was the kind of thing that I think was kind of a deal in Europe at the time is where these guys, when they really couldn't get the pickup gigs in the clubs that you know there was a lot of the local uh, studios that were willing to give them studio time but the condition was was that it was a lot of the local session guys they said okay well you know we've got you as the spotlight 
but we're, you know, but you've got to, the condition is you've got to play with A, B, and C. And they'd say, well, that's fine. You know, it's no problem. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that a lot of these guys, and that's the other thing too, is that, you know, undoubtedly there was a lot of jazz prima donnas, you know, there was a lot of people that disappeared too far up their own ass, but there was also a lot of guys that really had no issue with playing with anybody because it was like they just wanted to play you know yep. and i mean after after being drummed out of like you know every other fucking club in the united states for this that and the other thing and meanwhile based on you know addictions problems or this or that or you know being unreliable or whatever to go over to europe and just being able to given the opportunity to go into a studio and record They'll say, you know, like, shit, man. Like, you know, if it was Jesus, he'd say, shit, I'd, I'd record the Pontius Pilate. I don't give a shit, man. Damn, <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. You know, like, that's that's what it's about. And, and I think that's where a lot of the European guys, uh, you know, they gain notoriety for playing with legends. But I think at the time, it wasn't, the legends really weren't as, uh, you know, uh, didn't consider themselves above these guys they were just saying hey man like you're in like you're this is the session like let's just do it you know yeah yeah well i, I guess you know what you say there about the joy of playing and you know it doesn't matter as long as the cat can uh, you know, hold his own with the chops um that that really is conveyed very successfully in the film not just like in the blue note scenes but there's that uh, scene where um dexter and the band and you know, a couple of uh, european uh, local musicians end up in a studio and there's and you just sort of see you know, they're all getting inspired they're all talking to each other and uh, there's no tantrums being thrown like what we're used to seeing in rock music films um, <laughs> it's just you know a bunch of cats are on the same wavelength and they're telling each other jokes and and uh, they get round to playing I think round midnight the, the, the actual Thelonious Monk song. yeah there's a scene in the studio when they're talking about uh, Emmerich Pressburger's uh, The Red Shoes actually. that's right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Talking about a scene from the movie. Uh, right, right. Nice. Now, you know, it, it's really funny because, like, you know, earlier you were talking, you know, tonight about uh, addictions and different things. And I don't mean to lean on that metaphor, but, you know, both of these films, when you talked earlier about the slow pace, I think both of them kind of burn like a big fat joint. You know, and, and they they <laughs> kind of they, they kind of burn at their own at their own pace, and and you kind of take them. At, as they take, as as they unfold, you know? Especially, think, especially Bird. Right, especially Bird. And, and I think that that's the thing, is like, you know, it, it's it's like, I don't mean to equate jazz with marijuana specifically, but because jazz is equated more with heroin, and heroin yeah. is more solitary drug. Whereas, yes. you know, but I, but, I, but I find jazz is more, to me, like marijuana in the sense, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying from a personal perspective, I'm just saying as one of those people who have heard, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying that I think that it's like these guys are sharing in the same kind of element and you know, they're all basically indulging in the same thing and they're all basically partaking in the experience and it's the audience, it's the band and well, everybody's... Isn't it, isn't it called a jazz cigarette? Yeah, a Jeff. Yeah, right. A one of them, one of them skinny ones. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> no, but there, but everybody's getting getting off on the same thing, and it's just kind of like 
you know, where someone points out something, you know, when, when somebody's playing, you know, like a solo, somebody's taking a solo, they're pointing out something that you weren't aware of before, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, what about that? And somebody else says, no, 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 this is the way I see it. Boom, and then they're off on their thing, right? And then they all come back together, and everyone just kind of congregates again and just, you know, starts bubbling again in that little primordial pot, you know? And, I mean, that's that's what it is. And, I mean... This this is the thing where, you know, when you look at uh, the beat poets of the 50s and how everybody always called them kind of like the hopheads, you know, and they were the guys right. who listened to the, the bebop and all that shit. And I think the whole connection between weed and jazz, it, it's there. It's there big time because it's just, you know, everyone is so kind of focused on the music. They're so loose, but at the yeah. same time, Everyone is just kind of so wrapped around what's going on. It's it's it, it, it's a collective experience, and and you know, it, but at the same time, it, it's just this kind of like, you know, it's an oral orgy, is mm. what it is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, um, I think probably at that stage we might um, sort of move on to uh, talk about Bird. Unless, did you have any final thoughts about Ram Midnight, uh, Rodrigo? Well, I was thinking about. Do you guys smoke? Or have you ever smoked? No, never. Not me. I quit smoking about a year ago. And these two movies, man. <laughs> they so... got me hankering for a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Being in a just club. Uh, yeah. Hold on. Hold on. You'll you'll survive. Keep keep strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that it, it, it makes you want to drink more, if anything. You know? Like, I mean, it's just yeah. when you're looking at... Dale. And like, and then this is, this is the thing too, right? That I think that, you know, um, you've got to understand it. And we'll get into it with Bird, you know, but I think the one thing that really ties both of these films together too is that for a lot of people that don't understand, you know, a lot of the struggles that jazz musicians went through, and I'm not sympathizing and I'm not enabling either, but a lot of people would say that, you know, like, uh, Francois's character, they're saying, man, you know, like, why do you put up with this asshole, man? Like, why do you put up with this guy, like, going to bail him out in the hospital and almost getting arrested yourself and having orderly, fighting off orderlies just to drag this old guy out of, you know, like, the insane asylum or whatever, and he winds up, you know, like, puking in your bed? Like, why Why do you keep doing this, man? I mean, yeah, he's a he's an acclaimed jazz musician, and yeah, he's done great things, yeah. but at some point you'd say, that's enough, you know? And for people that don't understand that, there's a, I can imagine there would be a large percentage of, of you know, uh, film goers that would just be like, man, I'm getting real tired of this guy's shtick. You know, it's getting old real quick, you know. And and there were so many uh, artists, suffering artists. I mean, like, people have said the same argument to me about Jim Morrison. There's a lot of people I know that don't like the doors because they say, hey, man, Jim Morrison was just a drunk asshole. And, like, you know, yeah, he was talented, but he was – or Janis Joplin, you know. But I think the thing is, is that, you know, when you you kind of – it's not that you overlook their addictions. It's just that you, you look at more of the positives in their lives as opposed to the negatives, right? It's not that you're, you're giving them a free pass. Yeah. It's just, you know, you know you're, looking at, um, you're looking at what they accomplished as opposed to you know, what right. they wanted to do. Especially in this movie, and that's the power of his performance, Dexter Gordon's performance. Yeah. Because you really want to, you sympathize with him. You don't hate him. It's sure. not an, it's not really obnoxious. He's always, you know, trying to get some money and hustling. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, but once again, they don't play up to that terribly much. I mean, there are there are moments no. where, um, like, we'll, we'll get to it in Bird. I keep saying that, <laughs> where uh, you know, um, uh, Charlie Parker, you know, goes and does some terrible things. Uh, you know, really, and his, his wife Chan is really mm. long suffering. But and there are times you just want to smack your head and think, not again. But um, but you know, once again, you. you you never feel that about um, about Dale Turner. He's really no. always painted in a sympathetic in, light. It's always like, well, yep, he did this shit, but you know what? We love, we the writers and directors love this character, Dale Turner, yeah. as much as Francois does. So, And we want you to love him too. So, yes, these are things that he does, but okay, move on. Love love the art, and in fact, really, at the, at the crux of it all, he's he's a good man too, so... Right. Yeah, and they lost in one scene, but he says to to Francois, Lady Francis. <laughs> yeah. He tells them, don't cry for me. Don't you ever cry for me. Right. The last thing I wanted to say with what you, you just talked about, like, don't cry for me. I yeah. think that, you know, uh, the the last time that uh, Dale is with uh, Francois, he says, you know, yeah. there's not enough kindness in this world, right? Exactly. Right. It's a beautiful and thing. I, and yeah. I think that the last kind of act that he he does, Dale does for Francois, is he doesn't bother showing up at the airport. No, I think I think in That's... that way he he's kind of cutting cutting himself loose. And it's not that he's being an asshole by stiffing his buddy at the airport. He's just saying, "Let me die, man. Just let me go. Like you've done enough for me. I don't want to be an, uh, any more of a burden to you." Yeah, um, and not only that, you go back to your own life, start your own life. Yes. Right, right, right. That's the ultimate act of yeah. kindness. And, and, right. I, and that's what no, we're, I, we were talking about before saying from that experience, um, he's, and plus what he saw about the, uh, estrangement between Chan, um, Dale's yeah. daughter and Dale, he's learned how to be a better father to Beranger. And that last scene, uh, or, or, which they sort of refer to earlier while he's watching the old black and white movies and Beranger yeah. says, oh, do you like basketball? And he, he's, he's still living, uh, remembering those great memories that he had with Dale, yeah. but you get the impression that his relationship with uh, Beranger, without it being overly hitting you on the head with it, is a lot better. Right. And that, right. that I think is really the ultimate thing that I get out of it. Even if, if I hadn't been a jazz fan... Um, Best thing I'd get out of it was just these beautiful relationships between the characters. They they they're real, but they're yeah. not. There's nothing cynical about it, and it, this is evidence that you can tell a story, which you know is you know, it doesn't always have happy stuff. There's a lot of hard stuff that goes on here, but it never gets cynical. Uh, it, it can be realistic and yet not yeah. overly here over the head with cynicism. They don't dwell on it. There's a scene in which the his wife comes back and wants the kid back. And he takes a pause, and and I was I was thinking he's gonna start screaming, but he says, "All right, you can take the kid." <laughs> well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's what he, it's just... what he's wanted. He, he's you know, yeah. involved in your daughter's life, you know. Not, it's not, it's not, it's no big drama. Yeah, it's no big it's no big drama there. Yeah. No screaming matches, no really no real tears. It's just a small conversation. Uh, it's a great scene. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't think that we're um, going to be doing the uh, MVT or or um, or best scene or make or break or anything like that or scores but um, uh, unless you guys have like a, a, a point of focus you want to mention but I, I'm, I don't 
I don't think I'll be doing an MVT, but any of you guys want to have a like a final favorite well, moment? If I had to, I'd say Dexter Gordon MVT. Yep. Yep. To go with him, it's just he carries the movie on his own, and he's not an actor, obviously, not a professional actor, not a trained actor, but he's he he brings something else to the table that an actor might not have been able to. He brings experience and life experience, and you can see it in his eyes, you can hear it in his voice and his For movement. Sure. There's, there's no one else who could have taken that part. I mean, I think he, he no. was quoted as saying uh, that he would have felt very embarrassed if he'd won that Academy Award. He felt a bit embarrassed to be nominated for it. And mm. yet, whilst it's not you know necessarily traditionally brilliant acting per se, no one no. could have done what he did. And I'm not just right. talking about playing his horn. You know, it's just that character. Right. He lived, You're right, he lived... He lived that character. He lived that life. He understood it. Exactly. And he and Francois Clouset are, are, are a really great pair, I think. Yes. Because he's a oh, very yeah. naturalistic actor, Clouset. And when they're together, they're really, they're really, really great. And the relationship to me is another MVT if I have to choose <laughs> right. one. Yeah. Tim? I would say, to me, the very ending of the film, because, um, you know, when Herbie's in, they're in that amphitheater with the, with the pillars. Yes. When they're saying that they wanna, they wanna basically play a song of a guy who recently just passed, and you see that there's thousands of people out there and they're listening, you know. To me, that's not just um, a eulogy to the character of Dale, but it's actually a eulogy to Dexter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and yeah, so, yeah, you're right. That is a beautiful. Movie. And when you see that, it's it's just incredible because it, you know, and and I wonder whether or not. They actually shot that after Dexter passed or before, but it almost didn't. Didn't he die like about three years after the making of the film? I didn't think he died that that soon after it, because the film came it, out in 1986 or something, and I, I thought he lived till 1990. So I, I don't think it was like a eulogy for for Dexter, but maybe a tribute to Dexter certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just it just seemed to me like it was just one and the same, you know, because. When you realize that it was like Dexter's last recordings, you know, with Round Midnight, you know, it was almost like the twilight, the twilight of his, of his, uh, his career. It just, it just, it just hit me really hard, you know, because when, when Dale, when Dale dies, to me, when I realized, you know, that Dexter was deceased as well, I was just like, shit, man, like, you know, and Herbie, you know, Herbie's still kicking around, like, he's still doing a lot. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, okay. With that, I think we'll uh, go to a quick break, and we'll come back to talk about Clint Eastwood's film of 1987, Bird, about the great Charlie Parker. You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Round Midnight Cinema with Tim, Rodrigo, and Morris, and we'll be back in just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for the man of the century. Charlie Parker's in town. Jazz will never be the same. All right, what do you think about Yard Bird? I'm sorry. But if you and me got together... Three-month suspended sentence. Is it? 
possible that you could put me in jail and then reinstate my cavalry card, sir? I think you would benefit from the state asylum and from shock treatment. We're talking about a very special creative man. You know, there's no law that says I have to mess up. They don't talk about you when you're dead, Bert. More than they do now. It's time to save your life, Bird. This is the year I'm supposed to die. I will dizzy everything. I love you. The bird of time has but a little way to flutter. Charlie Yardbird Parker. A man who knew no boundaries. Bird. Produced and directed by Clint Eastwood. And we're back from break. Morris here in Melbourne. Tim in Seoul in Korea. And Rodrigo, where are you in Sweden? I'm in a small town called North Shopping. Okay. So yeah. it, it sounds like the start of a joke, doesn't it? You know, a Swede, a yeah, Canadian, and an Australian that. walk into a podcast or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, thanks for uh, sticking with us this far. I hope that you actually have. Uh, you're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Round Midnight Cinema. And we're talking jazz, we're talking film, and more to the point, we're talking jazz film tonight. So our next film for uh, the program is 1987's film Bird, about uh, Charlie Parker, directed by Clint Eastwood. Now, I don't know about you guys, but to that point, I had no idea that Eastwood was like as big a jazz fan, or in fact that he had any jazz affinity you know, at all. I, I hadn't seen Play Misty for me. Um, I didn't know that one when the movie came out. I was surprised when the movie came out. I was about 15 when the movie came out. Right. And I knew who Eastwood was, and I was a fan, and I didn't know he was a jazz fan. So when I I read that he was a director, I went, really? Eastwood for this? (laughs) Have you you seen in the... um, series of documentaries that Martin Scorsese produced here. It comes, it, it all, it's a very small community, isn't it? Uh, Martin Scorsese produced yeah. that thing, um, the uh, uh, the blues, and got all these different yeah. directors, Vim Vendors and, and Scorsese himself, and he got Clint Eastwood. He directed a film called Piano Blues. Yeah. And, uh, you, you see him, you see him uh, playing piano and interviewing some of the piano greats. is this great bit. I think he wears with Ray Charles and Ray Charles yeah. says to him at one point, says, um, oh, so-and-so played, played bitch, and oh, I, uh, can I, oh, hang on, <laughs> can, I, can I say that? And, and uh, Clint Eastwood says, no, 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 you, you can't sing words like that, you motherfucker, or, or something, <laughs> <laughs> or words to that effect. Yeah. Uh, there's that word again. Uh, so yeah. anyway, yes, this, this film, um, uh, Bird, about the, uh, the life, or a period of the life, I guess, of uh, renowned jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker. So, either of you want to take the lead on this? Go ahead, Rodrigo. You you can go ahead, Tim. I'm not really. I, I can't find my notes, so you can go ahead. Just give me a second. Okay. Go ahead. Well, to tell you, to tell you the truth, I don't have any notes on this, but I'll just go on and free riff just the way the bird did with bebop, you know. Nice. Um. The thing is, with this film is, I mean, you know, it opens up with an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote. Mm -hmm. You know, there are no second acts in an American life. Yeah. And and I think that that really says a lot. I mean, that Bird 
was, you know, a firecracker, man. That, you know, he, he burned bright, he burned hard, and he burned short. Yeah. But, but when you were there, you were able to see it. You know, you were able to realize, you know, I mean, you know, there, there's, um, not to dig too deep into the film yet, but there's a bit where uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Bird are sitting on the beach. And Dizzy, and Dizzy says to Bird, he says, you know, man, when you're gone, people are going to talk about you. Yeah. And he said it in a negative way, in reference to Bird's addictions. But I also think that, you know, on the other hand, it was a positive thing, too. Because the thing is, like, like I said, you know, at the beginning of our episode tonight, we were talking about how we were introduced to jazz and how I said that, you know... A lot of jazz to me was like punk rock in that, you know, it kind of pissed in the wind and went against, you know, conventions. And that was Bird. Bird was the father of bebop. I mean, he created his own form of punk rock and he flew his freak flag. And even at the, you know, at the cost of losing a lot of things. And a lot of that was due not not so much to, you know, his choice of, uh, of style and playing. But I mean, you know, to his uh, his addictions, his monkey mm. on his back. But I think uh, again, you know, this guy was such an innovator that at the time he was seen as as more of an annoyance. He was seen as more of a of a, a man who basically was uh, the master of his own self destruction. Yeah, a you liability. Know, yeah. A liability, right? And there was points, uh, you know, like there was even points like where I, I talked about with Round Midnight about the cabaret card, where, you know, there was a point where, you know, Bird actually wrote a letter to a judge in New York City saying, listen, man, I, you know, could you please, I would rather be incarcerated for, you know, 11 months than have my cabaret card revoked because, right, you know, right. I'm the yeah. father of three children and one of my children is sick with cystic fibrosis. His daughter, and um, and you know he was he was really you know he painted himself into a corner so many times, and but yet he he, he still became a legacy, and that's a really you know kind of uh, a crazy thing. I mean now it's almost kind of like the status quo for musicians anymore is to die early and leave a good-looking corpse, and everybody <laughs> everybody loves you when you're dead, you know. Yeah, but yeah. at but at that time, I mean, you know, everyone was just like, man, you know, like hospital after hospital after hospital, mm. and it wasn't. And it wasn't to be fair. It wasn't just Charlie because I mean, like you look at Billy Holiday, you look at yeah. you know so many others that, that look at Charles Mingus, Mingus, yeah. oh, big time, big time, Monk, even Monk for weed, yeah, you know, like. I mean, like, there's a, actually, you can go on the internet right now, and I think, I, I forget where I found it, but you can find a list of all the musicians who had their uh, cabaret cards revoked. Yeah. Man, and it's a who's who. It's all the greatest, all the greatest, man. They had all their cards yanked multiple times. And, and what's really incredible about it is that that cabaret card, eventually, they wound up, uh, you know, uh, Getting rid of it in 1967, I believe. Mm-hmm. So even up to the point, the mid, like the late 60s, they still had to have that card. So okay, so basically beyond that point, uh, uh, performers didn't need to have such a thing. 
Right. Okay. But but before that, it was a way to kind of you know, uh, it was a way for them to kind of uh, scour the clubs, you know, the the law, the local government to kind of you know uh, keep uh, keep the bad elements out of out of all the re- uh, reputable nightclubs, you know, in the major cities in Chicago and New York and L.A. and all these places, right? So anyway, um, I, I want to say that the beginning of this film, it actually starts with, um, when I first started to watch it, I thought it was, well, first and foremost, before we get into it, I have to say that Forrest Whitaker, and not the back of Forrest Whitaker's neck, no. <laughs> A very good talking about the community. That, right? <laughs> We're talking about the man Forrest Whitaker. Yes. He fuck he fucking owns in this film, man. If there is yeah. if there is film a film your career establishing film, this is it for him. This this yeah. is it. I mean, like I, I mean, I I saw him in The Last King of Scotland. Yes. And I it was yeah. amazing at I mean, but this this is the film as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, no, uh, definitely. He, he, he totally owns the movie and you can't keep your eyes off him. Whenever he's on screen, no. he's one of those guys that really owns the screen. But I, I have to say, I have to say that um, uh, the, the lady playing as his wife, Diane Venora, playing as uh, yeah. Chan, Chan Parker. I, I mean, you're, I, you're right that uh, Forrest Whitaker does own the movie, but Diane Venora is really um, taking it up. She holds her own. Much. She she yeah. completely owns her role, and uh, I, I think that uh, they were they have. I, can't, I don't want to use that hackneyed word, an on-screen chemistry, but definitely when they're together, uh, they they create something that I, I'm not sure that uh, any you know any other actor or actress could have done for the role. Uh, they they really they're, they're, yeah. the the sum is greater than you know, the individual parts, which are pretty high to begin with. I really like your part. When you initially see them together. And there, and you see their relationship. It seems like it's so dysfunctional, like it, 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 and it is. But, but I mean, that way they talk to each other, it's almost like you know, like it's so schizophrenic. Yep. But, but, but you realize it works for them. That the way that they 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 talk, and I mean, like in the beginning when Charlie comes home, and then he's like, "Don't humor me," and she's like, "I'm sorry, I was humoring you," and it's like, and he's like, "What?" Like you know. And it's really hard to wrap your head around at first, but then when you realize the whole relationship that they have and the way that they look at each other and the way they respect each other and understand each other, it, it's all, it's, it's all um, you know, it works for them. Yep. But I wanted to say, at the beginning of the film, um, I initially thought, as I was watching it, I thought it was uh, Forrest Whitaker's son, when in fact it was actually Forrest Whitaker's younger brother, yeah, Damon. Uh, play, yeah, playing Bird. Re- yeah, what, that, as, as a young child or, or, as, uh, or as a teenager? As a teenager, when he was on the bicycle. Right, right. Yeah, and right. when I was at the morgue as well. Right, 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 right. And yeah, that's... He plays a younger first Whitaker in... Uh, in uh, what's, the, what's the samurai movie he made? A ghost Dog. Oh, ghost Dog, yeah. Right. yeah. Dermouche. He plays a young... Exactly. It plays a younger Force Whitaker in that was as well. Right, 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 right. And you know what's really funny? Um, I wanted to, to get into this whole thing about addictions, right? You know, and I know we 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 uh, we tapped into a little bit of the reefer with Round Midnight, but 
I wanted to say that, you know, there's there's a thing that really has bothered me. And I mean, we could ruminate about this for hours and hours and hours, but I'll keep this short. But, you know, a lot of people have this belief that jazz musicians have to be addicted to something or they have to be tormented or, you know, they have to be so self-destructive. The same way that blues musicians, you know, were that they had to kind of, you know, be alcoholics or be total skits or sell their soul to the devil or this kind of thing. And if you, mm. you know, it's uh, if you were on heroin, you were Charlie Parker. If you weren't, you were Kenny G. You know, this <laughs> <laughs> kind of this kind, of kind of assumed bullshit. You know, I, I don't I don't buy it for a second because you know, and, and, and Bird gets into it because you know later on, like we'll, we'll talk about the uh, the. Uh, the character Red. Right. Yeah. yeah. Red Rodney. We'll into, yeah, Red Rodney. Well, we get into that in a minute. But, I mean, the thing is, if you look at the history of Charlie Parker, actually, the reason that he became a heroin addict is that he was actually in a car accident as a, as a young person. And the doctors actually gave him morphine injections to kill the pain. Yeah. And that's what actually caused him to become addicted. It wasn't... It wasn't a thing about where he had had a, a, an influential artist or someone who struck him as somebody he wanted to be, like, you know, his protege. I mean, I, I mean, um, you know, uh, an influence. Like, you know, it wasn't that at all. It was the fact that, you know, at that time, I mean, the doctors were slinging shit around like it was like peppermint candy. Yeah. You know, like those guys were writing scripts for like things that would knock you on your ass today. That you, you know, you you basically have to be a doctor today to get half of the stuff that they did back then. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, that's that's where a lot of it came from. Is that and and the fact that you know, you got to realize too that, and I'm not sympathizing with his plight, but also you got to realize that a lot of the jazz musicians at the time. Um, I read I read uh, an amazing book. By Studs Terkel, who's a Chicago historian, and um, he's he's now deceased, but he was a, a kind of a a collector of uh, oral histories, you know, about different cities and and different uh, themes and topics. And he would say, you know, that jazz musicians, you know, they'd be able to play in certain cities throughout the United States, but they weren't able to stay there. Mm-hmm. It's just okay, you know, we're giving you a couple of bucks, boy. Get the fuck out of town now. You, your band. Get the fuck out of town. So then they'd have to drive all night to the next city and right. be lucky if they would find a place to stay. You know, and this was the plight of so many blues musicians too. So these guys would make a make a living going town to town, you know, line to line, all the way down. And they and, and these guys would stay up on methamphetamines, you know, and, and they'd yeah. be like, you know, banging whatever they could just to get through the set, you know, and or you know, or, or get and there was a lot of massive de- Depression. There was like you know, blatant racism, all this thing. So I'm just saying that it was a whole stew to deal with. You know, it was just it was just a real shit, a real tempest. You know that these guys. It's amazing that so many of them, you know, were able to still play and, and, and get, and they were given the liberty of, of performing. You know, and I think that's. Um, and I'm not going to go on with this any you know any longer. But I wanted to say the difference between the two is um, around midnight and we kind of touched on this with the first film is that um, this idea that uh, you know in America you were still kind of like that um, step and fetch it performer 
you were a novelty. You were, you were a black a black entertainer. You know. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, you were an artist. And I think in Bird too, it touches on that when he goes to Europe for the first time. Yep. yep. And his and, yeah. and his brother sitting there with him in the bar saying, "Look, man, you know I don't make a lot of money, but they treat me good over here, and, and I earn. You know, and it's like, and he says, yeah. well, this year earns back in the states, and you know, he says, you know, like Duke Ellington earns back in the states. He says, you ain't those yeah. guys. Like, he says, well, it's either them or you're a junkie, right? Is that what you're telling me? You know, like. It's a it's that kind of thing, but I think in America at the time, fighting the segregation, fighting the racism, and um, a lot of that, you know, fighting McCarthyism, right? It was really pushing against against uh, these artists at the time, you know. Yeah. And I and, going back and to I, the, yeah. I'm, no, uh, I'm just going to say about the drugs just for a second. Uh, that what I like about it is that. Uh, for Sweet doesn't play it like he like like he's enjoying the drugs. He's like he's punishing no. himself. He has to live with the drugs. It's something he has to do. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned that because uh, when um, when Red Rodney you know scores some smack for exactly. him and yeah. uh, he, and and uh, Bird says you know, you know what the fuck are you doing, man? He said, well, I'm going to have some too. You know, you do it, so uh, I'm going to do it. He said, no, don't be an idiot. You can't do that. So he knows it's bad. He just knows that he's addicted and he can't get off it. Yeah. But he, he doesn't, doesn't want to. He doesn't yeah. want to see yeah, Red he, Rodney. Uh, right. Take well, there's a, a look of disappointment in his face. Not you, Red. Right. Yeah, Not yeah, you, right. man. There's the bit when um, initially where you know he goes to California for the first time and he sees Rodney out there and he's who the hell are you, boy? And he goes, Oh, I'm Red Rodney. Right? What are you doing? Well, I'm fixing. What do you think? If I ever see you doing this shit, well, I'll come back from death and I'll haunt you. You know, like he's... <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> we, we, should, we should probably say at this stage, because uh, we sort of haven't really mentioned it, about the, the structure of the film, I guess, is like, um, well, a, a free-form jazz tune, because, exactly. I, I mean, it's, it's not... It's obviously not a linear-told story. Uh, no. It, but... I guess part of my frustration, and maybe I shouldn't have been because, you know, maybe, you know, Clint Eastwood was being faithful to the structure of a free-form jazz tune, but um, unlike unlike a lot of other films which move back and forward in time, I never really got a sense of, hang on, when is this period? Hang on, how far before, how far after? And really, there were. it's just maybe because... Um, Parker's third wife, and we, we never know anything about the first two. Uh, but you know, Chan, the, the wife who they concentrate on in this film, uh, if she's got long hair, we think, all oh, right, okay, we get a sense that this is earlier. And when she's got short hair, we know it happens later. But even still, within that, you know, well, this is this bit later than this other late bit, or, or not? So I'm yeah. not sure that he was quite successful in uh, the narrative in, in that sense. I tended to feel yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I'd better relax relax on him trying to give us a narrative and more just focus on the fact that we're getting all these vignettes and you get an overall impression. Uh, maybe not so much of Bird, but what Clint Eastwood wanted to present us of Bird. Because, you know, we, I totally we... agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I... He's going for free form, but it comes up as disjointed. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much disjointed. One other thing, I guess, that I never quite got the sense of, well, because because Parker had uh, you know, a, a venue named after him, Birdland, and mm-hmm. he also was able to do 
for I think Verve Records who was able to do that that um, recording Charlie Parker with strings so you see him do the whole thing with uh, the string section playing you know, uh, the music uh, that tune Laura which I think is one of the greatest themes for a movie ever written absolutely um, but um, you, you get the film right if he was able to record with an orchestra and if he was able to have a venue named after him he must have been pretty successful we're talking in America not just uh, him being revered in Europe but he must have been pretty successful in America and yet Eastwood never really sort of shows us that we, we no. tend to feel like he was always struggling and yet you must well, have, he must have done all right at some point and you never get the sense well, of that Eastwood shows it through all the musicians because he's revered right. with other musicians and they love him yeah. there's a bit of Dizzy thing where Dizzy's telling him saying look man how much of that club do you own where they would they they won't even let you play in the club that has your goddamn name on it. Right. Yeah, you're not making any money off it. Right. But he must, that, have, I, he must have been he must have been like I, I'm not just talking musically because obviously artistically everyone revered him. But you get the feeling that he must have had some sort of as far as jazz music went he must have had some sort of financial success some sort of uh, due recognition from. Uh, the public, the wider jazz listening public, because well, hell, they they didn't just name a club after him just because he was a great musician, because there wasn't there was no uh, venue there named Dizzy's. Although, funnily enough, there is here in Melbourne. Uh, but um, but yeah, and the fact that he was able to record with an orchestra that would not have been financially viable even for a risk taking record label uh, to I, have him record I, with with. But I'm thinking that uh, what you said at the beginning, Maurice, uh, that maybe Eastwood, Eastwood is saying, you should know this. You should know how famous he was right, this time. Right, right. <laughs> well, I think also at the time, too, I think with African-Americans and the whole situation is that I think, you know, it might have been a lot of bad deci- uh, business decisions or the fact that, you know, it's like, well, you know, even though, you know, you're revered in the community and you can only, you know, uh, you know and everyone knows your name, you can only go so far. You know, yeah, we're only going to you go so far, you know, like... They, they actually talk about it in one scene. His wife asked him, you sold a lot of records. Yeah, but they're making the money, not me. Mm-hmm. Talking about the executives and the, and the producers. We'll sign off on it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And with, with his addictions, you know, with his, you know, with his personality, the way that he was so, like, off-kilter, that, you know, these guys were probably, you know, like... And it's the same way with a lot of musicians, where they just signed yeah. and they didn't... Fuck, you know, it's just like okay, fine, you know, like I don't give a shit, man. Like I can do this, uh, I can do this in my sleep. When he's talking about the writing the five songs, when yeah, when, when Ch- you know, Chan said you, yeah. you got to write five great songs, you know, it's like you got to come up with it, you know. And... But never since concern about money, he just wants to, he just wants to play, right? He just wants to, and be that's, able to play. That's kind of what I was saying earlier about Round Midnight about these guys that you know where. There was, you know, guys that were under them that would would have killed to play with these dudes, and these dudes were just like, "Yeah, I'll play with you, man. I don't give a shit." You know, like, yeah, this is jam. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, like, you know, it's amazing. Mm. This this film, it it looks to me. Well, I mean, it's sort of like a, uh, if you will, maybe a precursor, um, though not quite going to the same way that these films went. But it was sort of like a bit of a precursor to um, films that followed uh, Ray. And walk the line. Now, I, I'm not a fan of either of those films. They're, to me, both cookie cutter films uh, about you know great American musician um, who falls on hard times but trumps 
uh, or triumphs, I should say, uh, due to the love of a good woman. Uh, and yeah. that's not... have a movie, movie of the week feeling the boats right. And, and I, I read an article somewhere that said you will never see an American film made about Hank Williams because there was a guy whose life didn't end, or, or, or here's a guy. Well, sorry, he, there's a, a story about a guy whose um, life didn't have uh, a happy ending, or a movie that wouldn't mm. have a happy ending. He he shoots himself. Right. Whereas yeah. uh, I thought, but oh, hang on, have you thought about Bird? Because you know, really, you know, it's it's maybe that's the the Hank Williams story because it's it's we. But on the other hand, I can't help thinking that there's. I can't quite put my finger on it. It looks like an American film as opposed to Round Midnight, which, well, I guess ostensibly it is a European film with a lot of Americans in it, uh, but they have a different tone. There's a sense of melancholy but not hopelessness in Round right. Midnight, and Bird, it's, well, we're going to take on this dark, spiralling path. It's just it didn't have the the uh, happy, hopeful ending that Ray and Walk the Line do. Um, no, no. But it, it looks, it sort of has a feel that those two films sort of went and took to a further extent. I, I still think that Bird is a better film than either of those two by a long shot, but it's not for me as well told a story as, um, as Ran Midnight. And maybe that's not its fault because, um, Ran Midnight, you know, despite whatever they might say about, yeah, it's based on, these people's lives, a fictitious story about these people's lives, but it is a fictitious story ostensibly. They're making up some names and they have the luxury of saying, right, we're going to tell you just this one brief story a few months in the life of this character, whereas I have a very bad relationship with uh, biopics. I think that probably one of the more successful ones, or at least one that I really like, is uh, the film Backbeat about... Um, uh, the Beatles' oh, yeah. time in Germany, because it's it's just mm. like that brief period. It's not going to attempt to explain everything that we already know and have read and seen in documentaries a thousand times about where the Beatles went. That's too obvious. Let's just talk about this one chapter in their life. And it, it's a well-made film, but more to the point, I love the fact that it just concentrates on that one bit. And I think in Bird, uh, really, Eastwood saying, oh, I'm going to run here, I'm going to tell you this story. Oh, hang on, now I'm going to tell you that story. And I think that's maybe... Where the film fails a bit. She tries to crime scene too much, yeah. So, what was that, Roderick? He tries to cram scene, cram in too much into the movie. Right. And, and I think that's that's my main problem with the with the movies is with this maybe a bit too much in love. Yeah. Right. With the story. Yeah. yeah. Right. So right. you're gonna say Tim? Yeah, I was gonna say that he he bites off more than he can chew. Mm. But um, yeah. there's there's one thing I wanted to get into. Um, that I thought was kind of interesting is two two characters that kind of come up in different moments of the film is, you know, at the beginning, um, well, when he's a young man, when it's uh, Forrest Whitaker's brother, the coroner, when the coroner says to him, right. you know, you're only going to live till you're 40 or whatever, you know, and there's that, and then, you know, in dealing with his, his addictions, but then there's also that uh, narcotics cop that shows up out of the blue all the time. Right, right. Yeah. And it's mm. like devil to me. Where he just he kind of rolls down the window and he's like, Hi bird, how you doing? You know, and he's like, <laughs> Yeah. You want to punch him in the face. Oh yeah, yeah. Right, right. And he nails red too, right? Yep. You know? yep. Right. 
So, so it's almost like he's like that, you know, he, he, he's just kind of like the, the devil waiting in the wings to kind of come down and pinch him, you know? Yeah. But, you know, but with, with Bird is, you know, obviously, you know, they're, they're, they're two different characters between Dale, Dale and Charlie Parker. Like, they're very, very different. And, and I'm, in the sense that, you know, Charlie Parker, he was burning so bright that he, you know, there were so many things that got left to the wayside. I mean, you know, and even, even with uh, Chan, like she, she kind of even misconstrued, like, for example, when he comes back and his daughter's dying of cystic fibrosis, and there's a scene that really hit me where he says to his wife, is it okay if I kiss her? And and his wife says, what do you mean is it okay if you kiss her? And he goes, well, I don't want to wake her up. That's why I'm saying it. You know, and she thought he was just kind of treating her like she's an object or something, right? You know, and and there's... there's And I love that he says to her, I don't want to make it difficult for you. Right, exactly. He says to her, yeah, it's not really concerned about... He's concerned about the child, but he's concerned about his wife more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's misconstruing it. Uh, she's she's misconstrued his intentions. She's thinking, you yeah. know, he's looking at the child like it's like some type of oh, what is this doing here? Oh, this object, exactly. you know, like yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I guess I want to return now that you've sort of you know, brought in about their relationship. We, I've already mentioned the fact that I thought you know, Diane Venora um, brings as you know strong a performance as she can obviously against you know, a, a titan like a, like a Forrest Whitaker um, but yeah she she strikes me like she's got really two characters that she's playing in the film I mean the, we get the sense that when she's this young uh, socialite about town she's uh, going around um, going to jazz gigs and, and just having a freewheeling time of her life and you know, at first she doesn't want to get in a relationship with uh, Charlie Parker when she meets him, and he wants to be in a relationship with her. But you know, finally, you know, she gives in, and then she's forced to be the good mother, the good mm. wife, and it's a long way off from you know what she started out. And you so, sort of wonder whether, but you, you never get the sense that her character regrets. Look what I gave up. It's she regrets that she can't save him. There's this one moment in the film, you know, he's, he's just come back from, uh, I can't remember where from the studio or come back from a tour, and he says, oh, I need to go out again, like five minutes afterwards when things get, are getting difficult. He says, oh, I need to go to uh, speak to so-and-so about a session. And she knows that he's gone to, you know, uh, to, to get a hit. Um, and you, know, you never get the feeling that she, though she feels like, why did I leave that life behind? It's like, I regret that I can't do anything to save him. Right. And that's what I like about her character because a lot of times women in this in this, in this type of movies are just foils. Yeah. For the for the male character, they're just there to answer to ask questions and to for exposition more or less. But in this movie, she has her own life, and you get the feeling she has her own life, her own personality, uh, beside the life that she has with the bird. So. She's her own person. Yep, she certainly is. Um, one other point that I was going to make, this is like something that really hit me quite emotionally. Uh, well, more, And this is all due to uh, Forrest Whitaker's 
incredible performance. He drew out a whole heap of emotion out of his character, um, and and really you know, out of out of me as a, a viewer. And that's at a bit. I can't remember the name of the character, but early on in the film, where he, you know, he, he I think where he first starts playing the clubs, and you know, there's a saxophonist who he reveres, and he you know, gets on stage with him, like at a, a, I don't know, whatever the jazz equivalent of a hootenanny is, um, and then later on, um, he sees that you know this guy, you know, this, this saxophonist has realize that you know, it's not going to be he's not going to feed his family or he's not going to make put money in his pocket by playing jazz so he goes in for the rock and roll craze and he goes and sees him playing R&B or rock and roll at, at the Keith Apollo. David yeah so, Keith David talking about when right. Keith David he throws his sax off the bridge when yeah. he sees realizing that yeah he can never beat Charlie Parker yeah 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 he can never beat him or beat him yeah so so what what does he do he goes and honks his horn uh, or he, he becomes a honker uh, and yeah. Charlie Parker walks in to uh, was it at the Apollo I can't remember where, where, well, what what the theater was but he sees him sees him playing and he's thinking I don't believe it you're playing this shit and you know like, yeah, he says to the guy are you playing R&B here over here it's not R&B man it's rock and roll yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean that was that was probably like a dilemma that was facing a lot of musicians of the time. Yeah. You know, they they find they either had to adapt or or, or you know just really find that they weren't going to be able to play anywhere. Really, I mean, I, I guess a lot of musicians they they could adapt in one of two ways. They could either sort of you know choose to pursue different jazz stylings and see if that worked and you know people like uh, you know Miles Davis he was really sort of pushing the boundaries always you know he Absolutely. went from with, with uh, different styles of jazz you know some say he was like a uh, one of the founding fathers of, of uh, jazz fusion and uh, he was always listening to what different people were doing and brought it back home to him or you could just sort of say right well no I'm not even going to try I, and like this this guy who he says, right, well, the rock and roll craze is the way they need me. I'm just going to honk my horn. And, and what was the line that uh, Parker says to him? Uh, he, he steals his um, sax and says, I just wanted to see if I could uh, play the same note over and over again, see how long I could do that too. Right, right, right. Um, before yeah. I forget, something I wanted to mention that is kind of funny. It's, uh, it's a Charlie Parker antidote that I read years ago that I always thought was hilarious. And I think... Um, Charlie Parker was playing with Duke Ellington or some uh, some major uh, major band leader's band, and that this guy, you know, he would basically uh, nick all the uh, the musicians for being late. He docked them. You know, like, who, what, wasn't it a Cab Calloway sort of thing? Could have been Cab Calloway or one of these guys, but he was he was basically docking all these guys for being late. Yep. So he was giving Parker big time shit for always showing up late or not showing up at all and being on the knot. Mm. So Charlie, he used to basically, you know, uh, boot up after a gig. Well, the one day he decided he got this idea that he would boot up before the gig and he would fall asleep under the stage. There was a little after. <laughs> he got a little blanket and a pillow. Yeah. Well, he went on the knot and he fell asleep under the stage. Well, he missed the whole fucking show. He slept through the whole fucking show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was yeah. out. He was out unconscious, like KO'd. So when he woke up the next day, uh, you know, like uh, Cab Calloway comes up or whoever the band leader was came up and said, man, Parker, 
you're out of the band. He goes, why? He goes, you couldn't even bother showing up for the gig. And he goes, I was there. He goes, what do you mean? I goes, I was sleeping under the stage, man. Like, you know, like, I stepped in. I didn't mean, but I was there early. Like, you know, all my attentions were there, you know, like. And I think that was hilarious. I mean, like, that that's, you know, that's part of it, you know. I think and I think. Sorry, uh, go on. I think the, the problem with Parker, too, was that um, as his name, you know, kind of, you know, was uh, passed around and as, you know, he gained notoriety, you know, and he gained his status, you know, it also came with the fact that he was, you know, kind of, um, nah, what do, what's it unreliable. So, yeah. so I mean, like, you know, there was people willing to put big money down on him, but they really, it was almost like playing the lottery, you know, betting on the horses, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's what the problem was, is that, you know, it's like where all these people would go and pack a nightclub, you know, and like, you know, 50 bucks a head to go and see the famous Charlie Parker, but is he going to show up? Is he going to be straight? Is he going to be on time? Who knows, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's the thing, is that is that as his fame grew, you know, it, it was more stress on him to kind of be straight, to kind of level out, you know, and, and I think that's kind of what Dizzy was kind of saying to him, he was saying, because when they're sitting on the beach, there's that one moment when they're talking about where, you know, Charlie says, well, what's the secret? You know, what's the secret? You know, and Dizzy says, what do you mean, the secret of keeping the band together, the secret of being straight, the secret of not losing your shit? And then he goes, I don't want to give in to the white people. I don't want them to think I'm some type of, you know, uh, unreliable nigger you know that's what he says yes yeah so i don't want them to think i you know i'm the guy that they think i am he says i'm not going to give them the satisfaction you know yeah yeah exactly yeah and giving into that you know what i mean i think that's the difference between the two of them but that's something that's uh touched upon well more than touched upon it's spoken about quite heavily we were speaking about the miles davis autobiography i think before we started recording tonight and um, in the biography, you know, Miles goes and says about how he had, you know, he knew about Charlie Parker's playing, and he was dying to uh, to get the chance to play with him. And you know, it, it, so he went though from being almost, you know, like the uh, not quite the apprentice, but you know, he was sort of like you know, the young fan who wanted to go play with the great Charlie Parker, to being someone who just couldn't tolerate, didn't even want to be on the in the same room with him much less on the same stage he started to really piss him off and that was quite something because you know like Davis at the time was uh, having some serious drug addiction problems himself right yeah Um, any more thoughts about um, about the film oh oh, sorry before either of you I'm going to your final thoughts about the film. I guess I, I'm sort of sounding like I'm contradicting myself because I'd originally gone and said, you know, earlier on how I have a lot of problems with this film and I have a lot of a difficult relationship with biofilms. And certainly the film does have some shortcomings. And yet um, I did come away. This is my second viewing. I, I saw it when it first came out in the cinema and hadn't watched it again till we decided we were going to do this podcast. And overall, I'm still really, really glad I watched it. And it's, it's like a two-hour and 40-minute film. And the, the, the time went really, really quick. I, I enjoy it. I just think that you know, possibly it could have been uh, 
organized a lot better but you know hell a, a film about jazz and it's certainly one could never accuse Clint Eastwood of not treating his subject with the utmost respect and when I say the subject Absolutely. I'm not just talking about Parker but jazz music in general if you're if you're a jazz fan or you're a fan of uh, the American art form or, or, or Charlie Parker or anyone you, you should still watch this I don't think it's as good a film as Round Midnight and I'm not going to give it a numerical score that's not how I want to do it, but you know, it's, it's not as great, but yet it is still a worthwhile film pursuing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wonder, what you, I mean, if you're a jazz fan, you're going to love it. If you're not a jazz fan, I'm not so sure. Yeah, whereas we wouldn't say the same thing about yeah. Round Midnight. You wouldn't have to be a jazz no, film. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's lovingly tributed, and they're basically saying, oh. well, we're not going to dumb this down. But you can come along no. for the ride and, and really throw yourself into it. Now, now there's one advantage. There's one advantage that Round Midnight has over this, and the fact is, is as you mentioned, Morris. You know, it was recorded live. You know, like right off the board. You know, and the fact is, is that the lead actor, you know, Dexter Gordon, is a musician. Yes. Where, whereas in this, I mean, Forrest Whitaker, you know. I mean, you if you didn't know better, you'd think he'd been playing for years. Right. I mean, well, I really... Tell, you want to tell the story you, about how the music was recorded for this? Because that's a really good story. Do you know? No. Go ahead. Do you know, wait, Rodrigo? Didn't they isolate, isolate the tracks? They have right. some tracks, yeah, some uh, Charlie Parker solos, and they played... Uh, the rest of the, the the background music is played by other musicians. That's, I mean, that's an absolutely incredible thing. Yeah. I believe, like yeah. at the time, no one had ever done something like that before. But exactly. if you can imagine, because uh, basically, I think you know, uh, Lenny Niehaus, who was a musical director, and Clint Eastwood decided, well, there's no point in getting a modern, uh, modern recording. Okay, they wanted to have modern. Uh, sound the modern sound improvements that a modern recording would have, but they correctly worked out that no one played sax like Parker. And we're not just sort of saying that because uh, he was you know, the greatest or the best or whatever, but he had a style. You hear you hear Miles Davis, you know it's Miles Davis. You hear Charlie Parker, you know it's Charlie Parker, and no one could play the way how Charlie Parker did. So, in what was a you know, big advance for the time, as you said, they. Uh, went into the studio, they isolated, they took out all the other musicians and left just Parker's sax. But can you imagine what it would have been like as a modern jazz musician? You would have to be a musician of the highest order to be right. playing with tapes to accompany that, yeah. of, of, of a, a jazz musician who really facing it, it was spiraling all over the place. It's, it was incredible, an incredible achievement. Yeah, you, you know get a lot of original recordings from Chan... Chen Parker herself. He befriended Chen Chen Parker, right? Chen, Chen Rich. Yeah, Chen Richardson, yeah. But yeah. it was, um, you know, what's funny is like, you know, when you see, uh, for example, this is what I think is kind of amazing about this to me is that when you see people doing like uh, karaoke or or they do air guitar to... to uh. <laughs> somebody's playing air guitar to Hendrix you know like for example like you know Voodoo Child and they're up there playing air guitar that's one thing yep. but when you're Forrest Whitaker playing along to Charlie Parker and you're supposed to be Charlie Parker that's a whole different ball of wax man I mean that that right there in itself and, and, and to actually have it look believable right. is just, it's just amazing 
it's just amazing. It's just you know, I never, I never really went. Yeah, that's Forrest Whitaker. It's just I, I watch this thing like, yeah, that, that's that's Bird, man. That's the Bird, you know. Like that's it. Mm. Right. Yeah, you're now you're right. Absolutely, he does a great job. He, if you didn't know, you wouldn't have guessed. He, yeah, he does a fantastic job. And I, I've seen a bunch of movies where I don't, no, that guy's not falling. He's not the musician. No, 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 no. But but <laughs> yeah, Whitaker does a great job. Any any final thoughts, guys? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, well, there you go, listeners. Our, um, our general consensus, uh, not as great a film as Ram Midnight, but certainly one that you should pursue if you, if you haven't already, uh, done so. If you, I mean, well, I, I guess, you know, jazz films besides documentaries, or maybe even documentaries are rare enough as they come. But I guess it's also a chance to see, uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, pursue what was obviously a passion project for him. Um, and uh, he, whatever the shortcomings of the film are, there's a lot of love and a lot of respect put into this. And it's just a chance, I guess, to see you know Eastwood do something what was for then, uh, then for him completely different to anything that he'd uh, gone and done before. I mean, that was you know, what had he done like in the last few years prior to that? You know, it it'd probably been um, and that was sudden. How far back was Sudden Impact from uh, from Bird? Yeah, I know. But once you once you think about it, he uh, he often portrays doomed men, you know. Right. Sure. And men men then fall victim to their own image or their image they're creating for themselves. There's a lot in the, a lot of that in Eastwood movies. So it's not not as big as a stretch as one one might think. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that um, Eastwood, you know, as he's gone on in his lifetime. He's become, you know, in my my own opinion, he's become a little bit of what I would consider to be a historian, because you know yeah. he's got he's gone into his war pictures, you know the, the 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 number of war pictures that he's done from the Japanese perspective, from the American perspective, he's done this film Bird, you know, he's he's got into uh, the thing like with Scorsese with the blues, like I think that. Like he has a real interest in American history, and I think it really shows in this film, because you know it's not you know the film isn't also just focused on Charlie Parker, it's just focused on the era as well, because right. it's not just it's not just about Parker, it's about his relationship with Dizzy, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, it's it's about his relationship with his wife, about you know living at that time, and and you know, and and just the whole the whole thing. Mm. Or being a black man during that time. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, I think that um, concludes our discussions on uh, those two fine jazz films. I, we've got to find another couple of jazz films that we can bother Will and Sammy to let us talk about for a future episode. Or maybe we should just um, find some other music films in, in general. I think that would be a hell of a lot of fun. But I, I, I just want to thank both of you guys because... I've had an absolute blast just uh, discussing these films with uh, two like-minded people tonight. No, thank, thank you. you. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Big Will and uh, Sammy for uh, giving us the platform here to be able to talk about some jazz. Yeah, for sure, yes. man. Thanks, Thank guys. you, gentlemen. Um, yeah. And so, finally, any projects that uh, either you want to uh, plug to the listeners out there while we have the captive GGTMC audience? Well, I can plug my, my homepage. I'm an illustrator, as some of you 
might know, and it's uh, Rodrigo Obon. It's one word. Dot verb. Dot com. Just uh, check out dot, my stuff. Dot what? Dot verb. D i r b. Okay. Com. Verb. A verb. Uh, check it out. Definitely will do. And Tim. I want to say basically not for myself, but uh, Mike Malloy is just winding up a Kickstarter campaign for his new VHS documentary. So I just want to tell people to get on this and uh, support Mike as much as they can. Wicked Europe crime doc, and this guy's the shit. He knows what it's all about. So get on that. How do they uh, pursue that? They just do a search. Or... Yeah, on the Kickstarter, well, Mike's, Mike's a member of the community, and uh, he's right. got a link. He's put up several links, and they're around, so you'll know and you'll be able to see them. But please support Mike Malloy. Right. He put a link on Silver and Gold, I think. Yeah, we could. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, and I, I guess for my own ventures, if um, uh, you're so inclined, I host a podcast called Love That Album, and... It used to be every two weeks. Now I'm making it every three weeks because I'm getting too old. But basically every um, every uh, show, I pick an album and just talk about it pretty much in the same way that we've gone and spoken about these films tonight. You can uh, get it either from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or just search for Love That Album in iTunes. And I'd be uh, thrilled to um, have uh, you on board, have a bit of a listen. All right, so once again, many thanks to uh, Will and Sammy for allowing us to uh, do this under the GGTMC name. hope they'll allow us to do it again because, uh, once again, it was a whole heap of fun. My thanks to both of you guys for uh, uh, making this possible because this has just been an absolute thrill to revisit the film and, and talk with you too about um, Thank you, the music and films that we love. Yeah. All right. So thanks. Bye. All right, so uh, we'll um, hopefully see you guys or talk to you guys out there sometime down the track and uh, be yep. nice to each other listen to some great records and uh, if you haven't caught up with these songs we urge you to do so uh, and until oh, next we time we gotta say it goodnight motherfuckers goodnight motherfuckers we're not gonna say adios amigo we're gonna say goodnight motherfucker goodnight motherfucker you have a motherfucker achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is right there. 
From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.